Hey there, this is Beyond Synth, and I am Andy. I host the show. This week's episode is going to be different. I've not put together an episode like this before, but hopefully it is appropriate. So, we lost a very talented artist in the synthwave scene. Probably the most talented visual artist there was in this scene. Just over a week ago, uh, from the time that I'm recording this, Basil, a.k.a. Blood and Chrome, passed away. He was ill. He didn't even let those closest to him really know what was going on, and so it was a surprise to them, to his friends, and uh, I suppose to anyone who enjoyed his work. I know I don't say this a lot. We've talked about this even recently on the show, how I don't like to pick favorites or go on and on about, you know, my favorite artists in the scene because ultimately I don't want other artists to feel bad. There are obviously lots of talented people making music and uh, visual arts and stuff like that. But Blood and Chrome, Basil was the best visual artist. His work was phenomenal. I did have a conversation with him in episode 180 of the show. I will be replaying that conversation I had with him today, and I will also be discussing him with some of his friends and peers. And like I said, this episode is not formatted like a regular episode of Beyond Synth. Um, We will obviously not be doing our patrons or any sort of self-promotion. This episode is about Baz. First up, I'll be talking with James White, a.k.a. Signal Noise, whose work you will recognize. Uh, He's a very talented artist as well. I had him on the show in episode 130. And when I had Basil on the show, he, he spoke very highly of Signal Noise, and I thought it would be appropriate to have James come and talk In all honesty, I hadn't spoken with Basil in years. I hadn't talked to him over the course of the pandemic, and I think it had probably been about three years. But he was a guy I always respected and would chat with him time to time to talk about animation and things like that. So I thought it would be appropriate then also to have a conversation with some people who were closer with him and spoke with him more regularly and more, you know, up-to-date. So, after my conversation with James, um, I'm also having a a group chat, uh, which Marco has also joined, and uh, we are, of course, joined by Jay, who makes music as Dream Fiend, and we've played some tracks of his on the show, and by Johnny, a.k.a. Killstar, who uh, I've had on the show before, and we've played his tracks. They're two guys in Australia who were uh, close friends with Basil and spoke with him regularly, and I thought it would also be a good idea to have them on the show. And then I will be playing the uninterrupted conversation I had with Basil. I've removed the music and... uh, any sort of self-promotion and stuff, and I'm just going to play the straight forward conversation. I don't know how to necessarily do a show like this. 
I never really know the words to say. Basil was obviously incredibly talented, as you will hear in our conversations, that even other artists were in awe of the work he was able to accomplish. And I don't necessarily want to repeat myself too much, because you will hear us say these things when we have our conversations. But if you haven't already, do check out the work of Blood and Chrome, and throughout this show I will also play some of the music he made, because he also made music as well, although... Obviously, it was the visual arts where he focused most of his time. He did also make music, and it was very good. So how about we listen to a Blood and Chrome track, and then we'll go chat with Signal Noise. So this is Blood and Chrome with the track Undercard.
All right. Well, I'm here right now with James White, a.k.a. Signal Noise. And it's been how many years since you were on the show? Oh, Andy, it's been a minute. Was it? Has it been like four years or something? Four or five? I'm trying to think here. Hold on. Let me look. I should know my own damn show. <laughs> the point is, for people who don't know, but most of them do, obviously you are uh, a very talented visual artist and you also do speaking things and, and all these other things. And... Uh, Look at my my super professional research. <laughs> You're doing good. Yeah. <laughs> when I was listening back to the conversation I had with Basil, um, the last thing he said in that conversation was, you know, directly crediting you with reaching out to him. And so that was like a big thing for him because like it was basically you that sort of kind of reached out. And so I thought it would be appropriate uh, to chat with you about uh, Basil's work. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, because obviously it just goes without saying. I know there's going to be some repetition in this episode with the different conversations I have with people about Basil. I'm going to be saying the same things over and over again. But uh, he was just a super, super talented guy. And I don't mean this in a in a disrespectful way to other artists because I he was one of those people who truly, truly impressed me yeah. in a way that was like I wasn't being polite and going like, oh, cool thing, you know, like <laughs> with music in the synthwave scene, you know, like there's some music that's good. And then every so often an artist comes along with like 10 out of 10 production value and all this other shit. And you're like, oh, wow, this is like grade A professional music I'm listening to right now. And and Basil was the kind of artist that, uh, you know, especially his like that uh, animation he made, the Magnum Force. When I finally saw that, I was like, dude, this is like this is like the best thing that's come out of the scene. Like this is like a proper professional, like I would expect like a major company to have produced this thing. And I was, I was just so blown away uh, by his work. So yeah, I guess that's all I got to say about that. <laughs> your, your turn. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't have put that any better, Andy, you know, like uh, my history with, uh, with Baz, I call him Baz. B-A-Z, that's how I always spelled it, um, goes all the way back to about 2014 or 2015 on Tumblr of all places. Remember Tumblr? <laughs> I just ended up, I was running my uh, my Uzi Copter Tumblr and uh, just adding, it wasn't really for my work, it was for other work that I found just in the scene and, and authentic 80s stuff, that sort of thing. And I came across uh, this dude, uh, Blood and Chrome one day. And I think it might've been like his September 87 logo or something that he did. It was one of his branding jobs. Anyway, it could have been some Chrome or, or script eighties fonts or whatever. And at the time I was working on uh, trials of the blood dragon. It was kind of the pseudo sequel to uh, far cry three blood dragon. And I was working with a company called red links over in Finland. And, uh, they asked me one day, I was doing a lot of graphics for the eighties stuff. And they asked me, you know, do you do motion work? Because we need a couple of these titles animated. And I said like, no, unfortunately I don't like my, my stuff just sits there and doesn't do anything. That's, <laughs> that's my, my thing. But I said, you know, again, I was running my Tumblr at the time. And I said, you know, I, I don't know a guy, but I know of a guy that would absolutely kill this. Like, and I can reach out to him and, uh, and see if he's interested. And they said, yeah, yeah. And, and that guy was blood and Chrome. It was Baz. And, um, I sent him a DM on Tumblr, which is a weird <laughs> sentence to say <laughs> a DM on Tumblr. Do they have those? I don't know. But anyway, I sent him a note on Tumblr and he, uh, yeah. And he got back to me straight away. And, um, again, that was like 2014, 2015. And we've been in, in touch ever since. And what you, to loop it back around to what you said, Baz's work, his artwork has 
a sparkle about it. It has a shine that is Hollywood grade. I mean, he, he was just head and shoulders above other artists in the scene almost immediately. You know, that, that kind of raw talent that only exists in so few people in the, in the, in the chosen medium and style that they do. And it was immediate with Baz. You just looked at his work and said, wow, like how, for me, it was immediate jealousy. <laughs> it was like just looking at his work and going, God damn it. Like I'm looking at his Magnum Force logo right now. It's on my screen as we're talking. And I'm just, even, I'm just looking at his gradients going, how the hell did he even do that? Yeah. You know, like <laughs> his work is just is head and, head and shoulders above everybody out there. And um, the people that are in the 80s design scene, the people that are kind of these raging nostalgists that make this kind of work, that chrome, that like hot pink 80s style where it's a small community, you know, and it, it's within Synthwave, but it's a smaller art community. And, and we all kind of know each other, whether it's personally or through our work, you know, uh, Alessandro uh, Overglow, Jared Hageman, that's Chrome and Lightning, Sam Todd Hunter, he's worked with a lot of uh, new retro wave releases, Danny Bazette, and uh, in some of the platforms too, like Laser Steak and 8-Bit Zombie and, you know, moving into Synthwave, like Gunship, all of these people have a link to Baz. You know, they all know him. They all aspired to have their work either hired him to work for them. Like he's done some work for Gunship and his work for 8-Bit Zombie has been, is incredible. And, uh, and artists all, we all, we're all just connected. And, uh, Baz was kind of, in my opinion, he was the center point. He was the, the crown jewel of that style. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying this because of the sad news of, of my friend passing away. I'm saying that out of, Oh, I'm, I'm saying that out of, out of truth. He, he was the best. He was, uh, his work will live forever. Hell or high water, man. You know, what I really like when I, when I sort of scroll through and look at his stuff again, it just makes me think how, you know, the visual arts and the music, how they, how they work together and how they set the tone. And when I think back to that time, the 2014, 2015 kind of time that a lot of these logos that he designed, were really they set the tone of the scene for me when I see the Phaserland logo he did, which which Phaserland still you know will use or like the Protector One Hundred One or even Grooveworthy. Grooveworthy doesn't even make music anymore, I don't think. But like <laughs> that he would do these sort of things with like kind of lines in a way that I didn't see other people doing because nowadays obviously there's all these templates and things you can do and you throw up a font, you throw up the fucking Chrome title and you've got your thing. Yeah. But there's something about the way he did it that really made these things kind of more iconic and it's it's interesting because it's like even though the you know the synthwave scene is what it is and it's not necessarily like a huge scene but even some of the silhouettes of some of these logos that he did they're still special like there's still something about them that i look back and go it's not just chrome text with like a word like he's 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 done other things (laughs) and i don't necessarily have the the artistic language to sort of explain what it is he's doing but there's something about these things that really stand out. And when yeah. I look at them, there's something, it's silly to say that there's something classic about them because we're talking about, you know, art <laughs> that's relatively new. But there is something about almost like a bookmark of, of this time in the synthwave scene before it became sort of oversaturated. Yeah. And, uh, and I think, yeah, like that his artwork was really important in sort of establishing a lot of these kind of things. Yeah. You're totally right, man. And, uh, you know, Baz was the kind of guy that 
if he didn't know how to do something, he would learn it in seemingly a couple of hours, you know? So I'm, I think I'm, I'm looking at his site the same way you are. And I'm looking at his Keith Apicary, like a Sega Genesis looking cover and his future cop logo. And what is it? A Karu destiny, his, his work. Yeah. He can do the logo stuff and he can do the Chrome stuff and he does it fluidly and, and, and amazingly and authentically, but his illustration work, like I have no idea how one person can create all of these different aspects and have them all work together and play nice together, but all look authentically of that period. And and when I say of that period, I'm talking about uh, what you just said, Andy, like that period of 2014, 2015, when the synthwave style was being formulated, it was being constructed and built and uh, the language was being built by a number of different people. And Baz was right in the middle of that. And it's just, it's unbelievable the amount, the caliber of work that he did and the amount of work that he did, both still and motion, mm. you know? And, you know, I, I had the pleasure of hanging out with Baz in uh, when I spoke at uh, Off in Barcelona, and I believe it was 2018. He, or 2019, it was one of those years. And uh, he helped me and my buddy Gavin Strange, Jam Factory, with doing our Hustle Mania intro that we went up on stage to. He did, it was like a big wrestling thing, like themed, <laughs> and he did us like a WrestleMania-style logo, and it was all animated and bombastic and loud and exploded, and it was awesome <laughs> <laughs> in a very Baz, a very Baz kind of way. Okay, a side note to that is... Uh, uh, that son of a bitch hid his logo at the end of the uh, the intro. Nice. <laughs> and I didn't see it. I didn't see it until about six months ago. <laughs> so then he's like, I wrote to him and I was just like, you hid your logo at that. And he goes, God, it's about time you noticed that. <laughs> like it was on stage and everything. So that's the kind of guy. But um, I, I had the pleasure of uh, sitting down and talking to him. And I asked him like, you know, where where did you come from? Like creatively? How did you like, how did you learn all of this stuff? And he not long before that is when he decided, and I don't know if it was my work that he saw, like he always, he has an appreciation, obviously of all things eighties. He grew up at the same time that, uh, that we all did. And, um, he just decided to do it and he decided to learn the tools in order to achieve his work, which blew me away. And I think it was only like maybe four years prior to that or something. And he said, yeah, I decided to learn Photoshop and blender and all of these different tools all at once. And how he learned them that quick in order to achieve the caliber of work that he achieved makes no goddamn sense to me because it took me 20 years to learn one of those programs. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he learned like five of them in, in seemingly like two or three years. And to do it, like learning the programs is one thing, but being able to use those programs to achieve a level of quality that you're happy with is something else. And like, he was an absolute superhuman when it came to this work. I don't know how he did it. Honestly, <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, no, it is. I like just scrolling through the variety. Cause obviously he did like 3d as well. Cause he talked about the, the method of how he made that Magnum force animation. Yeah. And so it was sort of like a clever blend of like doing simple CGI models and then hand drawing over them. So, so using them for poses yeah. and then like, like animating 3d and then drawing over top of them for that, that hand drawn animation look. And it's crazy now because as you just scroll through this thing, there's like really awesome, just 3d work. You know, just like cool looking 3D models. And then like you say, like just the, the actual just 2D illustration stuff. And then all the, the logos 
And even just the animation style, I know we, we were saying this before we started recording, like, the, you know, the last time that I spoke to him, which was years and years ago, you know, pre-pandemic, definitely, because I was so impressed. He just, he had mastered the 80s laser beam. <laughs> and and that was something I was like, that was my last conversation with him was like, dude, you got to help me whenever I get around to making this robot show, which I guess I'm never going to make now. I, I You know what? I still want to. I'm going to say that right now. Maybe I'll be like 80 years old by the time I do, but I was so inspired by looking at his visual style and I'm like dude wouldn't it be so cool to have like a live action thing but like all the laser beams look like this and then we had this big conversation about you know trying to achieve that laser (laughs) effect and like how it would work and stuff like that and um, he was someone who I turned to to just talk like that kind of art stuff yeah and I found it really useful like I always like talking to people who basically understand a thing that I don't really understand at all <laughs> and just sit there and sort of listen and just be like I asked us last ask a lot of stupid questions but it's fun to think now that he was just sort of kind of learning all this stuff at the same time but like you say somehow processing it faster or something like I you know yeah. like he's got the matrix thing where they put the fucking chip in you and you learn karate like <laughs> That is very, yeah, I would not be surprised, man, if he, yeah, if he just jacked that stuff right into his brain because, you know, his, man, his magnum force, just this riff on this for a second, like that process that you talked about, like the doing things in 3D and then doing the 2D animation over top of that, using it for a reference, like if that's not your full-time job, what business did he have figuring <laughs> that out and doing it to the caliber that he did? Yeah. It just boggles my mind. Like he said what he was doing. I was like, what? How are you even figuring that? And then he showed me, like he sent it to me when he finished it. It's like, how the hell did you figure that out? And to make it look like a Hanna-Barbera cartoon from the eighties, it looks like GI Joe. It looks like all of these things. And the card illustrations, his character designs, how, you know, my equation for my work is that I take all the references from the 80s and put them into a blender and then, you know, kind of put my own spin on it and see what happens. I'm looking at his character designs for his Magnum Force cards right now, and it is a perfect blend of all of those things. He got the balance completely right, where if you're from that era, you can see like, yeah, that's Lion-O from the Thundercats and that's Duke from uh, from G.I. Joe and that's, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's Shredder from the Ninja Turtles. But if you don't know those those references, well, actually, if, it doesn't matter if you know those references or not. It is a completely unique style and completely unique characters that are all ownable by him, despite being influenced by all the stuff he loved when he was a kid, you know? Yeah. I don't know how he did it. I, I honestly don't know how he did it as well as uh, as he did. He was an absolute superhero. It's interesting. When I was listening back to the conversation I had with him, one of the things I brought up directly talking about this animation was what what, what impressed me so much was it was one of the first examples I have seen of someone doing a proper-looking retro animation in this sort of synthwave kind of universe because, for example, you know, you've got projects like Stranger Things and blah, 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 right? Where they've got the title sequence and, you know, they add, you know, the the dirt and dust and stuff and there's a little bit of wobble in there to make it look like authentically like this is a thing that could have been made in the 80s. And you'll have these projects that, you know, where they'll add whatever. I, I know it's been done to death now, but, you know, add the VHS effect or add this and this or wobble or some chromatic aberration or whatever to to make something look a little bit older when you're making like a movie or a TV show or a video or something. But I never saw anyone do it in animation. And I was, when I talked to him, 
uh, when I talked to ba- uh, Basil, this would be, I think, 2018. And I was still in my really frustrated phase that, like, why are we seeing all of these retro, you know, pastiche, like, movies and TV shows and stuff? Why isn't anyone throwing a fucking dust filter on cartoons? <laughs> why aren't people adding the drop shadow to make it, give it that cell-shaded look? Because... You know, there's so many of these cartoons that are animated digitally that look flat and too crisp, yep. and it just takes me right out of it. And I was listening to the conversation. I was saying this to, to him because I, I was so impressed by what he did. And I don't know if you've seen it, but do you know a Cuphead? Do you know Cuphead? Mm, sure. Yeah. There's the video game Cuphead, and they made an animation on Netflix. Right. And it's like the first cartoon I've seen. Now we're in the year 2022 where I'm like, hey, <laughs> they did it. They did the thing. They like it looks like you're watching an old like Warner Brothers or Disney kind of thing where it's got the fluid animation, but they add the dust. There's like a bit of drop shadow to give it the cell animation look. So it actually looks like a legitimate thing. And honestly, yeah. the Magnum Force trailer, and I felt like such an asshole because I was jaded by people always <laughs> sending me videos of like, hey, you know, you like Synthwave, you'll like this. And I got to watch some other fucking shitty video of people like pretending to be 80s cops. And I'm like, dude, I've seen this fucking joke a million times. Okay, I get it. There's the fucking hard ass fucking police chief yelling at the guy and he's got a mustache. And then you've got yep. some over the top action scene or whatever. <laughs> and so for a while, I didn't know that the Magnum Force trailer was something that he had made and people would link me to it. And I'm like, oh, fucking I'll watch it eventually. Yeah. And then when I finally watched it, I was like, oh, Oh, <laughs> like, oh, this is <laughs> the best thing I've ever seen. And like, then that's when I, I messaged him instantly. I'm like, dude, like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> this is, yeah, sometimes there are some musicians in the scene that are so good. I sometimes don't play their music immediately because I don't believe it. Right. Like where I'm just like, no, man, this is some, they stole this. Like this is some professional song. It's some 80s song. I don't know (laughs) that they're covering because I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of 80s. So like sometimes someone could pass along a cover and I wouldn't know. They'd be like, you know, that, you know, that was a fucking Adam Ant B-side, you fucking idiot or something. And I'm like, oh, (laughs) and so sometimes people do something that's so good. I'm almost skeptical at first. And that's the way I, when I saw his cartoon, I'm like, sure, this is too good. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't believe you. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's a good way of putting it, man. I don't believe you, you know, like, and, and you know, I've, I've had conversations with Baz about these things, about his process and whatever, because I'm always marveled by it. And okay, let's like rewind to that time you were talking about where everything's kind of had a, uh, a VHS filter thrown on top of it and it it just looks like a new thing that's just filtered yes and that's that and there was a lot of things that were being put out around that time 2016 whenever that was and his never had that yet it had this authentic quality to it and i asked him like what is stupid me not knowing anything about video i asked him like you know what settings are you using on that vhs filter to get your stuff to look like this and he was just like vhs filter what are you talking about I build all my stuff. (laughs) So he would analyze old movies and cartoons, like look at what the quality was. And he wouldn't then Google, you know, VHS filter or cartoon dust filter. He would go into After Effects or whatever the hell and he would build it. He would build the thing from scratch to make it look exactly the way that he wanted. And that's what made his work head and shoulders above everything that was going on at the time, you know, because he had that handmade quality and like, he didn't, he didn't cut any corners with this stuff. 
it had that authentic look from being back in the 80s, but it had the polish of a modern day artist and, uh, and modern day technology to do it. It's just incredible. And, and to rewind right back to what you said about the Magnum Force, uh, that Kickstarter video, it's the best. It is the best example of modern day 80s motion design and graphic design that we've seen. You know, it is just way, way up there. It is Hollywood grade. And someday I aspire to do something as good as that. It's inspired like uh, I'm me and my wife and a team are working on a, a project called Starcade. And we constantly get inspiration from that Kickstarter video, from the Magnum Force <laughs> video that Baz did, because, you know, I have this universe, this world in my head and the best visualization I've ever seen of something that I would be aiming at is the Magnum Force video. You know, it's that perfect rock and roll 80s cartoon that we've always like longed for but it did it never existed (laughs) if that that makes any sense uh yeah he's just an absolute juggernaut and it blows my mind that he did every part of that even the music for god's sake i think he he whipped up some music for our hustle mania intro and like how the hell did you do that? And he was like, I don't know, man. I got, got my keyboard out and I listened to uh, the WrestleMania theme and I came up with something that was kind of similar to it. Like, you do music too? Like, <laughs> how? I can't believe he was one person. You know, it's absolutely just floored me. Floored me his work. That's the thing. When I talked to him, our conversation was 100% visual art. And uh, I felt bad because we never really talked too much about his music. He has just a few tracks on Bandcamp, but um, they're all really good. And one of his tracks is like a track I still listen to all the time to this day. Uh, there's this track called Pornotron that he did. And it's <laughs> it's just such a good song. Like, it's just, it's it's awesome. I, all of his songs are good. But yeah. when someone has like an, an authentic artistic understanding of the period that you know if they're work if they're working in that medium of trying to like recreate or um you know capture that vibe and i think the nature of synthwave and the synthwave scene is like synthwave i don't think is necessarily a hard type of music to produce so that's how you can have so many people making it right you get a free copy of fl studio you watch a youtube tutorial and you can make synthwave but the people who stand out are the people with actual, like, musical understanding, like the real artists. Like, when I listen to some people who I know, oh, like, they were in bands, they understand music, they get music theory, so when they get their hands on the tools and make synthwave using those sounds I love, the, the music they make is is better, right? It, it rises to the top. Right. And I think, like you said, if you just make something new and put a VHS filter on it, you're not capturing the spirit of the retro stuff. You've just made a new thing and thrown a filter on it. And... In truth, we don't need the filter. Like, the filter is, it's a facade, right? Because when I watch classic cartoons, the ones I loved as a kid, I'll watch them fucking remastered 4K with all the fucking dust removed. Like, I mean, I'll watch them as clean as I can. I don't need to watch a wobbly VHS. And the magic is still there (laughs) because it's all about the style. It's all about, you know, the animation and all of these other things, the art direction and so on. That's the real thing. Like, you know, when, when I think back to listening to music as a kid or watching movies, the VHS was a hindrance. <laughs> the VHS was like, oh, my fucking tape broke. Oh, man, my favorite part of the movie is all fucking wobbly. And there's like stupid tracking fuzz that's like sliding up and down the screen. It pissed me off. <laughs> you got to understand, we just used cassettes because that's what was there. Yeah. Like we, we, we watched VHS tapes because that's what was there. But what we really loved was the things on those tapes. And his animation was really like, it didn't need wacky filters and stuff like that because he was capturing 
like the essence of the thing exactly which i know within this scene sometimes can be it's one of my biggest complaints like when i when i look at things and i i just think you know it's it's not just 80s to have a mullet <laughs> and you know have have the synthwave sun in the background like that's not like the the key is what's inside you know it's like yeah. what i love about 80s is the the unironic nature it's why i sort of have this resentment of the 90s in a way is because i like the 80s just the there was no irony you got these wacky ass movies and no one has to turn to the camera and go isn't this weird that i'm a <laughs> high school kid friends with this old man scientist with a time machine that's kind of weird like no one asks the question because no one's thinking about it because you're just there yeah and then nowadays everything is meta everything has to be explained everything yeah uh, you know you can't do anything at face value you have to call attention to it and look at the audience and wink and go look at what we're doing so basically my point is that you know like when you understand the actual essence of the thing and basil understood the essence of the thing yeah absolutely yeah and that and that's the thing like you said that really well like one of the key things about baz's work is that it tricks you into thinking it's authentic but we know that stuff in the 80s didn't look as good as his work right yeah but it looks so authentic so you're kind of like well where and when did this exist you know like how (laughs) how did how did i miss this when i was a kid you know like it's a, a trickery with his work that he figured out whether it was, you know, conscious or, or unconscious, he has, yeah, his work has this, this way of, of tricking you into thinking that it's from then. And, you know, this is, and if we're talking about just art in general, you know, and it, and it sort of goes back to what you said about, you know, that when the right people get a hold of the right tools, they can make, uh, they can make magic. And that, that was definitely Baz because he cut no corners when he was doing his work. And every time we've collaborated on something and I, I had the absolute honor of working with Baz on a few projects over the years. And uh, he was never a guy to say no, or you can't do that. Or, or I, I don't know how to do that. Or you can't do it because of X. He, he was never, ever, ever negative in his feedback surrounding anything that I, that I wanted to do. And I I was kind of timid, you know, like I had a couple of calls with him going like, I don't know. Like he's, I know he's a busy guy and I I don't want to ask him to do anything if it's going to be crazy elaborate. And I would go through my whole, you know, song and dance of explaining like this thing. And then this kind of comes in and then there's lightning and all this other stuff. And (laughs) he would just be like, like nodding and, and and listening. And I would go like, is that doable? Or in like, again, timid, and Baz would just go, yeah, man, totally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he would, and then like in two days, he in two days he would send me a, a sketch, a, like a motion sketch of this thing being like in almost a final form. And he was just he was up for anything. He he just wanted to create good work, and he always did. You know, if you asked him like I need this to be an eight, he'd deliver a fifteen. <laughs> you know, it's. Uh, it's just it's mind boggling to to look at the stuff that he's done in a pretty short period of time. And, you know, the, the amount of people that he's worked with. Yeah. Yeah. Just magic, man. You know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm happy at least when I went back and listened to my conversation with him. I'm happy that I said all this stuff to him because it made me feel OK. Like as I was listening back, I'm like, oh, good. Like I wasn't uh, hiding my um just how much I appreciated his work. You know, like I, I say this like point blank to him. I'm like, dude, this is the best thing I've ever seen. You need lots of money and you need to literally do this professionally. Like I want a huge company to hire you to make this a reality. Like I just, I was so enthusiastic because his stuff was so good, but yeah, I, I didn't really, you know, it, it's only been, you know, recently that I've been just scrolling through his page and, and really, really blown away by the variety. I, for some, I, I, I even, I think I said this even in the conversation with him, 
that I feel like we sort of take the visual arts for granted like but it's so important and especially with synthwave when there were so many artists coming out with with music that it kind of sounds the same or or that's you know it's hard to distinguish it would be the art that really set things apart right sometimes we just take it for granted like someone puts out an album you've got the cover you go okay whatever just go skip along and listen to the music not realizing how much work that visual art is doing right and so i was happy that i managed to say that to to basil just like dude like you gotta understand like this is really good and he was very humble you know like yeah considering how good that shit was you know he was very humble about he's just like oh you know i just try and do uh you know, I just try and do the best I can. I'm like, well, you fucking did. You did the best I've ever seen. Man. Yeah, that's, yeah, that sounds like Baz. Yeah, I'm. Uh, no, that's um, that's really that's really touching, Andy, that you got to say those things and that you did and that you 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 know now that you did. You know, because me and my wife were talking about this, and and she she knows Baz too, and uh, you know, just through the through the work that we've done, and uh, we all hung out together in, in Barcelona again. And you know, I I'm gushing about Baz's work because, uh, and I, and this is every level of truth. Like Baz is my favorite artist because you know, you know the kind of work that I do. So I'm going to be gravitating toward other people that do that kind of work. And Baz is my favorite artist. In in what you just said, in the same vein, I'm thankful today that I told him that to his face we're on a video call and you know i i told him you know you're you're my favorite artist man you know like i hope you know that and i'm really glad that you brought that up andy because i think that's just you know if you if you know somebody and you know if and you appreciate them or their work my god tell them tell them as soon as you can because you never know you know, in light in light of uh, the news that we got over the last couple of days, you just never know. And uh, just just be sure you you tell somebody. You know, I appreciate your work. I appreciate you. I care about you. Um, you just never know, right? I mean, I, I just hope people if if there's people who listen to this who who didn't know him to just go check out his work. You know, like it's just it's just it's it, yeah. it's there. You know what I mean? It's all around. And I, uh, yeah. I don't really know what to say. I, it's a, yeah, I've, never, yeah. I've never done a show like this before, you know? I appreciate that you reached out and, and that you're putting this together because, uh, you know, he, he truly does deserve all of us shouting from the mountaintops about his work. Um, you know, I don't know if we mentioned his uh, his website, but bloodychrome.com is where you can see uh, some of Baz's work. And I've been on it the whole time we've been chatting, Andy, and he updated it with all of his best work. It's all on there. And I'm just looking through the, uh, you know, the Affliction music video that he put together, some of those screenshots. And, you know, again, it's it looks like it's all 3D, which is completely different from the Magnum Force animation that we were talking about, which is completely different from his branding and his his poster work. But it's but it all fits together in that new yet authentic 80s synthwave style. You know, he just he nailed it. So please, everyone, go and go and check out Baz's work. Uh, he's on. Uh, there's a uh, an Instagram account too, which I believe is Bloody Chrome. Yes. Bloody Chrome, Instagram.com slash Bloody Chrome. That's where I've been. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he has a lot of his work there. And he has been working with uh, with a, another good friend of mine, uh, Dean Evans. Uh, he is the, uh, the the creative director of uh, Far Cry 3 Blood Dragon. That's how I know Dean. And um, 
Dean got hooked up with Baz through the Trials of the Blood Dragon game that he worked on because uh, Red Red Links, uh, I believe, was owned by Ubisoft at the time. And uh, that's how Dean ended up getting hooked up with uh with Baz and uh, ended up hiring him, and he's been uh, he's been working with Baz for the past uh, the past couple of years, and yeah, so uh, yeah, please go, just uh, yeah, uh, go and go and check out his work because uh, he it is uh, your eyeballs will thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, for lack of a better, more profound way, but yeah. <laughs> well, look, man, um, thanks for chatting. When I first found out, I think I was in the hospital. Yeah, and they they had this intermittent Wi-Fi. And then I guess his sister was the one who left a comment on the SoundCloud episode that I did with him. All right. Which got this whole, but that's what, that's what happened. It's got this whole ball rolling because she posted a sort of a memorial post, uh, about Basil. And I, and I immediately I was just like, what the hell? And like, I'm starting to, I'm trying to message her, but I don't really know her personally. And then that's when I reached out to Dream Fiend and Killstar. Right. And they knew him better. And so then they managed to f- do the detective work and get in contact with his family and stuff like that. And yeah, it was just, it's been such a, a crazy time. And I, so I knew immediately, I'm like, okay, well, we have to do an episode. We got to talk about him. And then I went back and listened to the audio and, and that's why I just appreciate you being here because he mentions you multiple times uh throughout the thing and so i i yeah yeah no i i I appreciate that andy thanks for thanks for having me on man you know uh miss him already it's uh i'm glad we have all this uh this artwork that he that he left us and uh it's a real it's a real sad loss to the uh the art world so uh you know baz forever man long live bloody chrome all right thanks for talking dude hey thanks for having me man And that was my chat with Signal Noise. How about we listen to another Blood and Chrome track? Let's do Filthy Streets, because this is a cool one. And when the song is over, I'll be chatting with Marco, Dream Fiend, and Killstar.
All right. Well, I'm here now. We got a bunch of people here to chat. So, of course, I've got uh, I've got Marco here. Say hi. Hi. And uh, I got. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, look, full disclosure, we didn't really plan, we planned to talk, and it was really important to get together and and obviously uh, memorialize Basil, but we didn't really plan this properly. So don't worry if this is a little loose, this episode is going to be much looser than a regular episode of the show, but I thought it was important to just kind of have these chats. And uh, so Marco's here, and of course I'm also joined with Jay, aka Dream Fiend, who has not been a proper guest on the show, and I apologize that this is your first uh, appearance on the program. But of course, we're going to have you on. You're a super talented guy. I think Marco recently uh, spun one of your tracks. We've played Dream Fiend tracks before, and you will obviously be a guest at some point, a proper guest. But uh, right now, of course, we're here talking about about Basil. But say say hi, Jay. What's up, guys? Uh, good to be here. You know, I'm going to have to hold you accountable for not having me on earlier, Andy. <laughs> I apologize. But, uh, you know, it's all good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just and... Uh, and then we're also here with Johnny, a.k.a. Killstar, who uh, has been on the show before. So you know him. He makes cool music as well. So you can uh, say hello. Hello. Hello, everyone. Um, thanks for having me on again, Andy. It's nice to be here. So basically, <clears throat> what happened is I got the notification on SoundCloud. Uh, Nadia, who uh, is Basil's sister, right? Correct. She posted a memorial sort of thing on on the episode that I did with him, which sort of kickstarted this whole thing. Because the minute I saw this message that she said that Basil had passed away, I I started reaching out to her. I was trying to figure out like, is this true? Like, what's going on? And then I knew that uh, Jay, I knew that you were close with Basil, and so then I reached out to you, and I was like, "Have you heard from him? Like, what's going on?" And I found out that you and uh, and Johnny had been closer with Basil. Like, Basil was a guy I always, I really respected. He was clearly like the best visual artist in the whole scene, and you know, I chatted with him privately from time to time, but to be honest with you, I hadn't talked to him pre-pandemic. It might be like three years. We used to talk about animation. Whenever I had animation questions or visual art questions, I would reach out to him. I think the last time I talked to him, we were talking about 80s cartoon laser beams because I was so impressed by the way he captured that. And so that was like, that was our conversation. So the reason why you guys are here today is because um, you guys were obviously closer with Basil. And I thought it would be, that, that it was appropriate that you guys guys would come on and sort of uh, uh, talk about him a bit. So that's what's going on. Yeah. You know, it makes, makes a lot of sense. Um, like we were good friends with Basil. <clears throat> when you reached out to me, uh, was it Tuesday? I think uh, I, like, I, I was kind of struck with that, that worry because it was only the day prior that, you know, I was having a chat with Johnny, you know, you know, regular telegram group and, um, you know, just put out the question, Baz, where are you, man? How you doing? I hope everything's all right. Um, didn't hear from him. And then got that message from you the next day, which was, uh, yeah, it didn't bring good news, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, Basil was, uh, you know, one of our brothers, a mentor to both of us, to Johnny and I. And, uh, yeah, he, he's, he's been along, like, alongside us on, on our musical journeys throughout pretty much the whole thing. So yeah, we met, we met Baz back in 2014 or something, 2013 or 2014. That's right, yeah. Yeah, we met, obviously, through the Synthwave scene, um, through the Facebook groups and whatnot. And, yeah, Baz was asking a question about some music theory-related stuff. And um, given my knowledge and experience, I answered him, and we ended up starting to chat. And that was 
around the time where I was just starting the the Killstar project and Baz hadn't even started his Blood and Chrome project yet. He was just doing sort of odd jobs here and there, trying to make a name for himself. And um, I was really lucky to have Baz to do the artwork for my debut EP, Memories, and uh, that came out fantastic. So, yeah, it was definitely a bit of a shock when we read that comment on the um, Beyond Synth episode from Nadia. It was like, is this true? Because um, mm. Baz, like we, we used to talk, you know, every day, sending voice messages, text messages, little videos, and sending each other, um, you know, like works in progress. He would share some of his artworks and, and his music too. And, you know, we were, we were fairly in touch, even though we never got to meet Basil in the flesh. You could say we were quite, we knew him quite intimately. And, um, yeah, it was, it was really a bit of a sudden surprise to hear that he'd passed just like that without, you know, any leading up to it. So he kept this secret. Yeah, even yeah. from his, even from his sister. So I, um, I ended up reaching out to Nadia as well, and I'd never spoken to her before that day. And I was like, are you Basil's sister? What's going on? I want to find out if this is true or not. And she said, yes. Um, he said that he was having some, some troubles with his liver, but he was the type of person who kind of was keeping it private and also downplaying the severity and the seriousness of his issues because um, she told me that she offered uh, Baz, you know, a part of her liver because they're a match. So she said, if you need this, I can donate part of my liver to you. And he said, no, look, I've had a chat to the doctor and he just said that I need to start eating better. You know, he kind of played it down and didn't really tell her how far gone it was. So it came as a bit of a surprise even to her. She did mention that he was having some problems for a couple of months at least, um, but she didn't know how bad it was. And neither did any of us. He never mentioned a word of it to any of us. Yeah. It's interesting that you initially started talking with him about sort of music theory stuff, because mm. like, let's be clear here. Like Basil was an insanely talented guy. Yeah, uh, definitely. No doubt. I mean, Marco, like you and I were talking privately just the other day mm. when I was talking about sort of planning this episode and the way that, you know, even in private, we're just sort of gushing about that guy's talent. Yeah. Yeah. When I was talking to Signal Noise, he sort of brought up this good point. It's like somehow Basil, I, I use the metaphor of the Matrix where he was learning so many skills simultaneously, but he was doing it so well. Mm. When you consider, when you look at his body of work and how varied it is, mm. like Marco, when you, because you had him on Synthetic Sundays and you you interviewed him a lot earlier than I did. Yeah. So like, what was some yeah. of the stuff that sort of like stood out to you, you know, when you first sort of discovered his work? Well, there's a lot of talented artists in the scene, obviously, you know, but Basil always stood out to me. I mean, his, his work was just different, you know, like, it still had a retro feel to it, but had a lot of his work was, um, you know, like other world, other planet, different creature. I mean, it was just different, you know, that, that was the thing. I think with Basil, what sort of separated him from the rest for me personally as an artist and as a creative was his passion, you know, like he was an extremely passionate human about the things that he liked, you know, about the nostalgic memories from childhood and the things that he enjoyed watching. And, and that, um, in my opinion, is what, made his art special and what made him so prolific at what he did because he worked hard so so hard at all these areas and and he was driven by passion in order to become great he wanted to be great he wanted to you know strive to be the best he could be and it was driven by that passion and i think that's what really uh, set him apart from potentially some other creators out there for me personally at least um to add on to that what basil kind of had was he 
always went his own way. Like, yeah. uh, I think there's a tendency when you're learning something new, like, you know, art or music, or whatever, to copy from other people. And, you know, the style becomes a bit homogenized in a way. But I think Basil always had a clear vision of what he wanted to do. Right. And he always um, set out to stick to that vision. And he didn't compromise on quality at all. Yeah, he wasn't trying to copy anyone or reproduce the same old things that have been popping up as synthwave tropes you know he wanted to make it his own and i think that's what kind of set him apart for me i was gonna say when i really wanted some artwork for when i used to do synthetic sundays he was the guy i reached out to you know he was my favorite artist i just said just make whatever you think you know i know you're gonna do a good job just you know go for it kind of thing and he came back with like the best shit i've ever seen you know like i was so impressed with it and I still use it to this day. You know, that was back in 2016. And then I just sort of reflecting as well, and I was just thinking about how much of his artwork is actually still in my life and how much of an influence it's had. I mean, shit like I've still got uh, Kills Johnny, I Got Your Album on a T-shirt still, which I cherish, you know. I've got the synthetics artwork that he did. I've got a po- we got a, po- a massive poster on my wall here in the bedroom of it. I've got uh, Jazzy and I both got T-shirts of his artwork from Phaserland to Protector 101, a design the awesome design he did I've got all that stuff on my shirts and I wear it regularly it's just such an influence on on me you know it's it's crazy when you think about it we've reached this point obviously and it's been this way in synthwave for a while where there's there's obviously a template in place now for both music and art like when I think back to you know 2014 2015 like you said, Marco, like the, the Phaserland, Grooveworthy, Future Mm. Cop Phaserland, Grooveworthy um, the Killstar artwork these things that are so in a weird way, even though the synthwave scene isn't super old, his artwork is like iconic within the scene because nowadays, of course, everyone does the Chrome text with the stupid, uh, you know, like the writing, or whatever, but it's like, it's a template. But when he did it, it's different. Like there's something that just felt genuine about it, especially the Magnum yeah. Force trailer he did, which was, and I I say this a lot on the show that I don't like to talk about my favorite things because I don't want people to feel bad. The reason why I don't ever really talk so much about my favorite artists over and over again is because I don't want some of the other artists to feel left out or feel bad or whatever. But I think now it's fair to say, and even when I talked to Signal Noise, he said the same thing. He just says, he he told Basil like flat out, you're my favorite artist. And Hmm. Basil was like, he was so fucking good. When I saw the stupid Magnum Force commercial, (laughs) that was at that point, the most impressive thing I had seen the synthwave scene produce. Like, I was like, dude, this is, this is real. Mm. Like, I I, I get that the synthwave scene is, it's an indie electronic scene. Obviously, people are just producing music, you know, like solo artists in their bedrooms and their studios or whatever. And obviously, there's a lot of talented people. I mean, you guys are talented and have made awesome music. But every so often, you know, someone will come along with such amazing production that you go like, what? Like, I almost don't believe it. I think it's a lie. Like, when I first saw Magnum yeah. Force, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> this was produced by a team. This was not produced by one guy. Like, I didn't even believe it. Yeah. <laughs> I know. The amazing thing about Basil was, like, he just randomly, you know, go, oh, I was, you know, just messing around with a sketch. It took 15 minutes, you know, it's just pretty shit, you know. 
here it is. And, and Johnny and I would just be like fanboying going, shit, Baz, man, that, that's sick, man. It's so good. It looks lit. <laughs> yeah, even his works in progress look like finished pieces. And it's like, dude, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. Like, <laughs> stop, stop showing us your amazing talent. Like, it's like you get jealous because you're like, man, how do you fucking do this so well? <laughs> yeah, you, you guys have seen the Affliction music video with uh, Alex and Tokyo Rose. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, one that one just blew me away when I saw yeah. when I saw Baz. He was showing us the, the works in progress as it was coming along. We're like, dude, this yeah. looks like it was made by a team, like you were saying, Andy. It was it was pretty amazing to see that come along from the ground up to, you know, like from concept to him actually fleshing it out and, and working through it. Yeah, that, that, that kind of leads to another really fascinating and inspiring part of Baz's journey for me is at least um because when we met Basil he was primarily an illustrator um and he dabbled in music as well like but he you know he was like 2d artist kind of thing and and he always you know used to talk about getting into 3d and kind of put it off it was like you know the computer wasn't good enough and you know stuff like that but he reached a point where he he said you know fuck this I'm doing it and he started his like 3d journey and from that point even his really early stuff had, it was like unique to Baz, you know, and it was like it, most people who are starting in something, it, like we create like the most simplest shit, like a donut and like, you know, yeah. just basic, <laughs> with, real with basic the sprinkles on it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure Basil did that too. Blender, but, Blender tutorial 101. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm sure Basil did that too. He would have worked through all those, all that shit. But, um, <laughs> by the time it came to him to like share some stuff, like he was already at a level where like his little shitty learning concepts were, identifiable to Baz, you know, they were already developing a unique quality to them. Yeah, his his rate of acceleration was so yeah. impressive, like how fast he picked up something to the point where, you know, it, it didn't seem that long from the point where he started learning how to do 3D modeling and animation. Well, it's because of that dedication, man, you know, the passion, the drive. It seemed like within a year he was working at CD Projekt Red on the cyberpunk game and mm. it's like, dude, how, how did you get there like that quickly? It was a little bit um, longer. It was a couple of years. Yeah, it's. Um, I, I know. It, it seemed. It seemed like such a short span in the if, right. in the grand scheme of things. Though yeah. I, I don't know the exact timeline, but yeah, it yeah. didn't seem that long to me because it was just one success after another, and he just kind of used the last piece that he did as leverage to get a, a better gig. And um, yeah, yeah, he was uh, he was on fire, no doubt about yeah, it. Absolutely, it's kind of bittersweet, right? Because um, Basil spent a, a good majority of the time that we knew him as a freelance artist, you know, and he was doing work for lots of people in the scene. You know, you can see his work all over the internet, kind of thing. And um, you know, a point come where, like, he he decided to change the uh, trajectory of his life. Like, he wanted to get his shit together. Um, being a freelance artist wasn't cutting it for him, so he decided to uh, you know apply for some proper jobs and that's when he sort of um you know landed that job at cd project red to work on cyberpunk and from that point he kind of just uh like you could see his skills just went to that next level because he was doing this stuff for the big boys now yeah some of the animations for that he put together for cyberpunk were just like insane you know nutty stuff triple a shit that's why i used the when i was talking to uh, signal noise i used the metaphor of the matrix because it felt like that Basil could do that thing, you know, where he puts the fucking chip in him or whatever, and all of a sudden he knows Kung Fu. Right. Either he had right. some sort of different type of brain or like where he could fast track this knowledge where it was like, okay, I'm going to learn 3D now. 
and then just learned 3D now. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, you know, for me, I know those same things. It'd be like, I'd be like years, I'd, like you guys say, going through these tutorials. And like, mm-hmm. and it was interesting the way that he combined all the things. Like, when he explained how he put together the Magnum Force animation and how he was using 3D models and then hand drawing animation on top of the 3D models, like using that as the template and stuff. Mm-hmm. So many disciplines coming together at once. And for the people listening to the show, just go to his website or go to his Instagram. And one of the, the coolest things is seeing the variety like he kind of did everything and you know there's a lot of art i mean that's not that there's a lot of talented artists in the scene but they sort of focus on a thing like this is my style this is what i do you look at his instagram it's like here's a 3d animation here's a 2d animation here is some 2d stylized artwork of like weird like alien stuff now here's some cool like kind of chrome text logo and he still managed as cliche Again, like, you know, I'll, I'll go off on the cliches of Synthwave scene. He managed to make those things special. Like, you know, when we think of the Chrome Text logo now, it's like a cliche of Synthwave. But when you look back at the stuff that he produced, even those logos, those Chrome logos. It's a quality. It's a certain quality to it. You know, it was just the top of the top, the creme de la creme. Even like, you'd be like, all right, guys, here's a picture of Arnold Schwarzenegger I drew with my feet. And we're like, ooh. (laughs) 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 Basically, that's with just shit gold, yeah. (laughs) He impressed me so much. I think that's the main thing I just want people to know because I, I know that I tend not to say those sorts of things. And his artwork was so impressive that it's... I don't know. It's it's hard to even say. Like I just, he was so damn good, and I'm just, yeah. I'm happy that yeah. I got the chance to say it. And I, I know you guys did, obviously. Like when you when you were talking to him and stuff like this. And I think that's that's one thing that at least I can feel good about is that even though he was humble, because when I would tell him that, he'd be like, "Oh, you know, I'm just trying to, you know, do the best I can." I'm like, "Dude, you made the best thing I've seen. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, this <laughs> yeah. is, you know, this is <laughs> yeah. no time to be humble, but." And clearly, and even talking to Signal, I mean, like, Signal Noise is, like, one of the biggest artists, like, doing this sort of stuff. And for him to just be just full-on, look, Basil's my favorite artist. Like, Mm -hmm. he recognizes even that, like, that dude was on another level. Absolutely. Like, at least I can know that he knew, even if he wanted to remain humble about it, that at least he got the feedback. In his mind somewhere, he must have known, like, okay, what I'm doing is pretty fucking cool. Yeah, uh, he knew. He dedicated so much of his life, you know, to this stuff. So, um, I mean, we were like always fanboying out. So deep down, like, you know, yeah, he probably did know, like he'd always be like humble and, and stuff like that. But of course, like when you, when you really put your mind towards something and you are grinding at that for years and years and years, like you've got to have a certain level of self-confidence to continue to be able to pull off these things that he sort of, uh, tried to do you know yeah here's the thing with baz though like he he put everything into his work he he didn't really have a social life he was quite isolated and he'd moved to poland to work at cd project red and he didn't really know anybody there he wasn't having like the best quality of life mentally you know It, it it takes its toll you know being in isolation and being away from everyone and you know, being jaded by his life experiences, you know, he, he didn't have the best 
childhood and upbringing. He's had a lot of shit happen in his life. So I think what he did to cope with all that was to really focus all of his energy on doing the best that he could do in his line of work and, you know, what he was passionate about. And he really did have a gift for it. He really did have an eye and um, an intuition for what looked good and what, what he wanted to manifest in the real world from his imagination. And uh, it was really super impressive. That's one of the things, at least the positives that come from a scene like this, because obviously we do experience a lot of negatives of like, you know, social media and scenes and stuff like this. Like, obviously, there's there's a lot of problems, but the positives is the connections that we've made with people and the friendships we've made. Like, as you're as you're talking about his experiences when he like sort of moves away and is a bit isolated, that you know that it's still cool that we made these connections and we're able to sort of give people that sense of place and friendships and stuff, like real friendships, genuine friendships, even right. without ever having like met people in person. I mean... Yeah, absolutely. That's just so important because I know... I mean, I don't have any sort of mathematical equation to work this out, but I think the synthwave scene is full of a lot of like loner type people or at least there's you know there's that sort of tendency and so it's nice that there is this community where we do have a lot of these friendships and can sort of help and and nurture some people that maybe don't have you know people in their own like their real life that are supporting their artistic right. journey or whatever yeah exactly like uh, a lot of people don't have anyone in their real quote unquote life and uh you know it's pretty sad but you know it's uh it, it is good like you said that we have these communities where you can make real genuine friendships with people you know lifelong friendships sometimes and we we often did talk about visiting each other one day like baz was like yeah i'm gonna come down to australia one day visit you guys and i really wanted to do an ayahuasca trip in like uh that was on my bucket list yeah man <laughs> Yeah, man. Baz was a one of the. He was a. He was a real, uh, you know, space cadet. In I mean that in in the best way possible, you know. So <laughs> it was it was something I really wanted to do, but unfortunately didn't get to experience that. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm real lucky to to know the guy. You know, I mean, I knew him pretty well around 2013 or probably 2015 and you know and it was a huge part of the scene back then and and i feel lucky that we all were part of that because i you know i talk about it a lot I, th- I feel like that was a really special era in the scene and and the community itself you know everyone was really together on these projects and it, and it felt really new and we were doing something different you know and um yeah i was really lucky to get to know him i mean he's a funny guy really nice guy easy to get along with uh, i know he's sort of around maybe 2016 he sort of try to get off social media a bit just to be able to focus on his work because i knew he you know he knew he was onto something and yeah we all know how social media can be how much fucking time draining and shit like that yeah, and counterproductive really most of the time yeah and then just it was such a pleasure after that to see how much his work i mean i never thought he could improve because it was already so fucking good but then he got into his animation stuff and and all that and every time i was just like wow man you know look at him go look at his shit how good it is you know it's just fucking incredible a real talent you know is a amazing like marco as you say like there are these sort of different eras of the synthwave scene and i really equate his artwork with setting the tone of that period of time because like when i look back at that stuff i just think oh this stuff is so 
it really helped set that mood. And when I look at it, I really do get that feeling of, oh, remember the early days of Synthwave? Wasn't that so quaint when there was only, you know, 200 people on the Synthetics group? And, uh, you know, there, there was enough artists that I could actually remember mm. their names. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, I could actually listen to their music and go, hey, I know who that is. I mean, obviously, it's great, you know, that these things expand and there's a lot of people who come in and, and make stuff too. But for the people that joined the scene early, and I remember even at the time, I felt like I was late to it. When I go back and listen to my old episodes of Beyond Synth, it's like, I'm saying that a lot. I feel like I was late because I started the show in 2013 and people were making this music in like 2010, 2011. Yeah, exactly. And nowadays, we're we're like the elder statesmen of synthwave scene and we can look back mm. at this period of time and Basil's art and go... This was the golden age, you know, this was the golden age of Synthwave. The, the senior citizens of Synthwave. I know, oh, it's yeah. crazy, it's crazy. Back in my day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's weird getting nostalgic about that nostalgia stuff you know, sometimes. People have their reference points, you know, they say they're nostalgic for 80s stuff, but they actually look at stuff from the 80s and draw inspiration from the art and the music of the time. Yeah. And obviously we're in a period now where people have joined the synthwave scene who are inspired by other synthwave. So they're sort of mimicking other synthwave music. And so when I think about Basil's artwork, he really captured the source. It wasn't like looking at other synthwave artists and visual art and going, oh, I'm going to do logos like them or I'm going to do stuff. He really sort of, in in the way that, you know, like Miami Nights 1984 sort of and Laserhawk kind of like created the template yeah. of like what became like sort of synthwave. I think that Basil's art also sort of created certain templates that people use, even if they don't realize it, they're doing it, you know? For sure. I'd agree with that. I just realized I said both template and template. I said it two different ways. <laughs> Make up your mind, Andy. <laughs> How do you guys say template in Australia? I've got so many Australians around me right now. Uh, I say template. Okay. Yeah, template. How about you, Marco? Template, mate. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> it rhymes with mate. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't rhyme with mate. Get it the fuck yeah, out yeah, of yeah. here. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. Like, what uh, is, is there other things that we should uh, touch on here? I mean, obviously, one thing I haven't talked about that much. I know when I talked to Signal Noise, we mainly focused on the um, on the visual art, but also Basil did make some music as well yeah. and some really cool songs. Like, you know, I was arguing with Marco because my favorite, my personal favorite is Pornotron. I love that song, Pornotron, and I've listened to that song a ton. Mm -hmm. And it really surprised me because, and this is something like I'll admit now, and I feel bad about this. When I talked to Basil on the show, I had no idea he made music. Like, we focused the entire thing on the visual art. Yeah. Right. And then it was only in post-production that I'm like, I got to his band camp, and I'm like, oh, fuck. Like, yeah. he actually makes good music. Yeah. Yeah, Bixby Snyder. <laughs> yeah, throwback. <laughs> yeah, like, he's only released a few songs. You know, there's like, I think there's only three on his band camp. There's a Undercard and Pornotron and... Uh, Filthy Streets. Filthy Streets, of course. The best, his best one, yeah, Andy. Well, no, Pornotron <laughs> is the best one, man. Pornotron <laughs> is so fucking good. Yeah, but, whatever. But <laughs> <laughs> it's a good song, yeah. But, um. <laughs> 
But <laughs> that was another thing too. Like again, it, just this other level of impressive that this guy was. That when I stumbled on his Bandcamp, there was three songs, and they were all really good. Mm. To this Ooh. day, I still listen to Pornotron, even though I hadn't talked to Basil in like three years. It's been Pornotron is still a track I put on. To this day, I listen to it. I love it. Of course you do, you pervert. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Every day, huh? <laughs> All right, that's it. I'm done. <laughs> I said what I had to say. No, but that's what I feel. I feel like his music was so good back then, and that's when I first met him. He was making music that if he had pursued that as well, you know, or, or focused as much energy as he did into his artwork, into his music, he could have been something oh, yeah. else in that. Yeah, you know 100%. what I mean? It's crazy how much talent this guy had. Like, he made quite a lot of music, like just random sketches and stuff, and he always had ideas and thoughts, but the one thing he didn't have was the time to... The time, yeah. Just to be able to... Do everything. Yeah, exactly. So it was more of a passion thing for Baz. The music was just... Uh, a way for him to kick back and, and, and push himself and learn new things and achieve new sounds. He'd always come in and into the chat and ask questions like, how would I achieve this? How would I do this? He'd come to Johnny for certain chord progressions and, or, you know, for, to learn how to do this or, you know, with the production side of things, how do I get a snare to sound like this? You know, how do I, you know, so it was like a, a real passion thing for him to do when he's sort of kicking back. Baz was like super creative and he wanted to be able to do everything himself. So if he was working on a video that needed sound and music, he'd be the guy who'd be doing that. Yeah. Like his Kickstarter video for the um, Magnum Force cards. Like, yeah, exactly. I think he collaborated maybe with John of the Shred, maybe. I could be wrong yeah, on this. Sounds, but, um, yeah. but, you know, the, the concept for the music and stuff was, was all Basil. And yeah. you can really see his attention to detail and, and the influences that he's drawing from are right from the source. He's not kind of like making a copy of a copy like a lot of people do as well. Like they, they get a new introduction to the synthwave scene and all they've heard is new synthwave. Uh, a lot of people haven't even heard like, you know, the original 80s songs that synthwave draws some of its influence from and you know that's that's how the the scene ends up you know changing and, and going in different directions but yeah basil was really true to the to the original source and he, he paid a lot of attention to detail and you can really see that in not just his visual art but also his music when you guys were chatting did you ever like send over like other random ideas or things because i mean there is really just those three tracks right or is there is there other stuff that i don't know about that's 100 percent. there's so much but it's a lot of it's unfinished right it's just sketches ideas yeah yeah, there there are definitely more than what he's released on Bandcamp. But I, I, I would say that, you know, not finished, not fledged out. I know he had some collaboration stuff he was doing too, which never really got released. Yeah, I actually... um. I actually had the pleasure of writing some music with Baz. Baz was pretty inspired by, you know, like the 70s sound at the time. It was like late 70s kind of space disco vibe, Batello disco, which, you know, I've always loved that sort of style stuff. And, and we kind of figured it'd be cool to just try some stuff, you know, and, and sort of mix the 2010 electronica element into, you know, some of that old school sounding funky stuff funky synthy spacey stuff and but unfortunately i never i never sort of finished all that but, but pretty much like we put together i'd say maybe five or six seven songs some of them had some m- magic in them um I'm, I, and i feel bad that like i didn't push them out and get them out and get them finished and stuff while it was here you know but um i'm hoping to um work on that <laughs> at some point really soon and uh do it for him for baz you know 
Yeah. It's tough because I know that feeling you have, you know, like where you're just, you're sitting on tracks Mm -hmm. and you know that there's this stuff there and you know that there's, you know, seeds of magic or whatever in there. Yeah. But also there's real life that prevents you from just sitting in the studio for, you know, 14 hours a day and just getting it out. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. There's there's also that element of like Basil, right? When I put out music, uh, like I have this level of quality that I, you know, try and achieve at least. I try to the best of my quality, uh, to my ability, sorry. And um, it's hard to navigate that. Like, it's kind of like a part of the ego that you kind of have to deal with. When it comes to creating art, you've at some point have to let it go. Uh, as I say, art's never really finished. You're just choosing to sort of let it go. So, you know, Baz used to get quite fixated on the art he was creating as well to a, try and attain that level of quality. It's like sometimes if you can't quite get to that quality level, it's like, how can I release this? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah I don't know. It's like the search for, not perfection, but for something, that level of uh, quality, you know? Oh, man. I just thought of the like coolest, the, the funniest thing. Um, we have a recording of, of Baz um, reading the, the story from Kindergarten Cop. Um, you know, like the kid's story um, that Arnold Schwarzenegger reads? Like, if I were a bird, you know, like... But we've got a recording of Baz um, reciting that whole poem, and it's set to me playing the uh, the piano score from the movie. So um, <laughs> maybe we can chuck that in. Yeah, you can somehow. drop drop that clip in. Insert <laughs> clip. If you were a bird that lived on high, you'd lean in the wind when the wind came by. You'd set at the wind when it took you away. That's where I want to go today Where am I going? I don't quite know What does it matter where people go? Down to the wood where the bluebells grow Anywhere, anywhere I don't know The best thing for me and for us, I think we can do is, is try and celebrate his life and, and um, you know, share his art, share his music, share everything that he did and, and who he was as a person. Yeah, I know, Baz, he wouldn't want he wouldn't want us to be depressed. He'd want us no. to celebrate and, yeah. uh, you know, just uh, remember him fondly. You guys want to have some final thoughts or? Yeah, like thoughts and, and uh, you know, prayers go out to Basil's family and, and everyone who knew Basil. And I, I think I'd just like to say uh, his life was a special one. Um meant a lot to me and I know it meant a lot to others. And um, I hope that, uh, you know, Baz is uh, leveled up and, and um, yeah, we'll see you on the other side, my friend. I guess to sum up, it was really a privilege to know Baz and to have him and to be able to call him a friend you know he was um, a huge inspiration you know and he always had good advice he, he was never the type of person to to bullshit you he would always speak the truth as he saw it and that's what I always respected about him you knew that you were getting his honest opinion and his honest feedback whenever you had a chat to him so it, it was really refreshing in that way to get to know someone um, who was so genuine as Baz was and also with the amount of talent he had, how humble he was and how he was always pushing himself to be better, even though to us mere mortals, it seemed like he'd achieved the pinnacle. He, he wasn't happy. He wanted to keep going and keep learning. He, he stayed hungry and yeah, he, he was a huge inspiration and he will be definitely sorely missed. Yeah. Well said, man. Well said. Yeah. Yep. I, I mean, I'll just say, I'm just, I feel really privileged that I've, I got to know him that, 
his artworks in my life that I've experienced it and it's influenced me so much, inspired me. You know, if anyone has that's listening to this hasn't checked out his work, please follow the links. Have a look at his stuff. It, it's bloody amazing, like we, like we're saying. And um, and I guess his legacy lives on, you know, yeah. and it will through through everyone. You know, I've still got all his artwork and stuff everywhere, and I wear it proudly still. You know, and um, yeah, I definitely I'm definitely gonna miss the guy. That's for fucking sure. Mm. So listen, uh, Jay, Johnny, uh, Marco, thank you for chatting today. Been a pleasure, Andy. Thanks. Thanks, Andy. I wish it was under better circumstances, but it's yeah. always nice to chat with cool people. And obviously, you're all very talented fellows uh, making cool things. And uh, it makes me feel good knowing that, that uh, you know, you guys had a good relationship with Basil and that you actually like had fun and had fun chats and stuff. That's always nice mm-hmm. when we're all sort of separated all over the world in our own little bubbles and stuff like this. It's nice to know that uh you know yeah and thanks for doing what you do andy because you know uh you kind of like bring us all together you're kind of like the hub where you you do you give people a platform to to showcase what's going on and in in the world of synthwave and just general cool music and art so yeah thanks thanks for um doing your part andy it's like the big heart's covered in laughs as a disguise you know but um but andy's just trying to bring everyone together and and showcase the world's talent, so salute Andy. Yeah, one of these days we'll have we'll have Dream Fiend on the show proper. <laughs> Listen, thank you guys for uh, for chatting with me. Yeah, thanks for coming on, guys. It's been nice to share the, some insights. Thanks for making the time, uh, and also thanks for coordinating it so it worked for all of us. Uh, I really appreciate yeah. that. But yeah, thanks again, and it was lovely to chat. Take care, gentlemen. I'll catch you uh, next time. Thanks, guys. And that was my conversation with Marco and Dream Fiend, a.k.a. Jay, and Killstar, a.k.a. Johnny. How about we listen to my personal favorite Blood and Chrome track, Pornotron. I love this one. And when the song is over, we'll go back in time to the conversation I had with Basil. So this is Pornotron by Blood and Chrome.
All right. Well, I am here with Blood and Chrome. Yes. How do you uh, say your name? Basil. You can just call me Baz for short. Nice and easy. Is that what your friends call you? I don't have any friends. (laughs) (laughs) So look, man, you're a talented artist. Is that correct? I'm just an artist. Talented. Nah, who knows? Well, you've definitely done some fucking cool shit. We'll say that. So first of all, let's just explain. So you've been around the synthwave scene for a long time doing uh, cover artworks and stuff like that for people. Yeah, a couple of years since... 2014, I'd say. And you've also done some cool sort of animation work as well. So that was the the last thing I saw was you had a Kickstarter for like a card game. That's right. Yeah. Magnum Force. And it was like a fully animated trailer and it was a really fucking good. Thank you. Took a long time to do that one. Yeah. Was that all yourself? Like you did that all by yourself? Yes. It was all by myself. I do everything by myself. I'm a lonely guy. Okay. <laughs> Is that going to be the running theme through this? Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> no friends, no life, just me and my computer. So if people haven't seen it, they should go and watch it. What was the the game called? It's Magnum Force. It's uh it's it's just a regular card game like, you know, like poker and you know, it's like a custom deck of cards. The trailer that you did, this fully sort of animated trailer, it's so good. Like, it was really good. It must have been a super painstaking process, especially if it was just you doing it. Like, it seemed, the, the animation seemed very fluid. The art was good. The effects were cool. Like, if you paid somebody to do that, that would have cost a lot of money, is what I'm trying to say. Yes, correct. <laughs> uh, it took me, <laughs> it took me a year to do in between like client work and stuff but uh, still I wasn't gonna do a whole animated thing originally I was approached by uh, this guy who owns like an online playing card like custom deck website where he sells like custom artisan decks and stuff and he approached me about making something that was like 80s themed and I was like okay look let's do uh, something that's like an 80s cartoon I made a bunch of characters and I designed the cards. Thinking about the pitch video, I was just going to do like basically just the latter part of the animation that you saw with the cards sort of being thrown around and flying around and stuff like that. You know, I got this idea that I was going to make like an 80s style cartoon intro, but I didn't really know if I could pull it off. So I was just like, I don't you know, I might do it. I might not. Finally, I decided to do it, and it was very long and arduous and painful, and, <laughs> you know, a lot of times I you know, almost quit. It kind of broke me, because <laughs> I was like, you know, I had so many times where I was just like, God, I suck. I can't do this. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it came together over many, many months, and, you know, I learned a lot during the making of it, because when I started, I wasn't quite sure how to, how to do it. And what I ended up doing was I used like 3D models and stuff to set the poses and, you know, the keyframes and stuff like that. And then in Photoshop, I drew over that frame by frame. And that's how I got the final result. Oh, wow, man. Well, yeah, it's super impressive. I always had this impression that you were like from Portugal or something or some country around there. And I don't know why. Where are you based? Yeah, I live in Portugal right now. So why don't you have an accent? (laughs) (laughs) i can do an accent if you want (laughs) no because like you don't really have a discernible accent so like explain this to me okay well i'm not (laughs) okay i'm not portuguese okay i have some family here and uh, i've lived here 
before, but I've traveled around a lot, lived in the States for a little while as well, and I kind of picked up somewhat of a, an American accent from there, but also from, you know, watching movies and TV shows and stuff. From the time that I was really young, I, I kind of spoke this way. Spoke English in the house because neither of my parents could communicate with each other except in English because they didn't speak each other's language. And I didn't end up really learning their languages. So I just been speaking English my whole life. There never really was much of an accent to begin with. Okay. It was always kind of like this. Yeah. All right. That makes sense. The, 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 my, my problem has been solved. <laughs> like, how many languages do you speak? Really, I, I only speak English fluently. I mean, I speak Portuguese, obviously. I've been living here for a little while. When I was younger, I spoke Polish. That's my mother's native tongue. But I haven't spoken that in a long, long time. So I've forgotten it. My father's native tongue is Arabic. And I used to speak that as well. But if I don't speak it on the regular, it just goes away. But I'm sure, like, if I were re-exposed to it at some point, it will sort of come back. But I just speak English now because that's what everybody speaks, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great language. It's fantastic. When did you start doing the art? Yeah, when I was very young. I mean, in school and stuff, I was always drawing in my notebooks instead of doing any schoolwork. You know, I'd fill up uh, the margins and stuff with little doodles. Well, I used to have sketchbooks filled with drawings from my younger years and uh you know i went through a period when i was like 11 or 12 where i drew nothing except naked women <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's lost to time now but uh yeah like i was always drawing you know like i was kind of an introverted kid so i was always like lost in in my little notebook or little pieces of paper or whatever and just drawing i stopped doing it as i got older and went to college and tried to do something respectable like like a business degree or something but it never really worked out because uh, i just found that stuff boring did you graduate no I, like did you get a business degree no, I'm, a, I'm a dropout okay. I'm, <laughs> I'm a complete waste of space man <laughs> oh whatever i did end up working at a bank but it was like you know kind of like a lowly tech support job. I've had loads of jobs. Like I've worked at every kind of job you can think of. But uh, the last job I had, which I got laid off from like in around 2008, because they were just laying off a bunch of people. And I was one of the first on the chopping block because I wasn't any good at my job. And uh, right at the tail end of that, I started doing portraits or like little drawings of my coworkers and stuff. And I was charging him like $10, $20 a pop. And I was like, you know, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, ah, maybe I can, you know, rekindle my relationship with art. And then I got laid off and then I decided, okay, fuck it, I'll just go for it. And so I started like trying to get, you know, work as an illustrator. I started doing uh, graphics for mobile games, just, you know, for, you know, one man developer operations kind of thing, like really nothing jobs, I guess you could say, but started to build up a portfolio. And then I discovered Synthwave a few years after that. It was another like boost because I was getting tired of uh, the work I was doing because, it was, you know, it was just not really fulfilling for me because you know i was drawing like little cutesy characters and stuff like that and i was like ah, this is kind of lame and then uh, a friend of mine showed me his playlist on youtube of all these synthwave music i was stunned you know i was like wow this this is amazing i had no idea that it existed i started to get into the music more and more and i discovered the community on facebook like synthetics and then your show as well like it was one of the first things that came up from uh discovering synthwave so i uh, you know, I started to 
get into it. Eventually, I started doing artwork for some artists, and uh, from there, leads to here. What were some of the first ones you did, like the actual Synthwave covers? Very first thing I did, I think, was uh, for Android Automatic. I did a, a logo illustration for them, like chrome and neon kind of thing. Then I did one for uh, Phaserland and uh, cover for um, Highway Superstar. I did one for Arc Neon. Grooveworthy. I did a logo illustration for him. Those were some of the first. I was looking at a lot of the artwork that was already out there. Some of the guys that were already doing it were um, Chrome and Lightning, you know, Jared Overglow, Dwayne from uh, Master Control Program. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Like, I, I'm, I have a plan now that I, I'm going to try and start talking to more uh, like visual artists as well. Yeah, that's great, man involved in the scene and i'm probably going to go with it in like the wrong order this always happens you know like where i come up with an idea and then it'll be like 10 years down the road where i'm like oh yeah why have i never talked to so and so you know like the biggest one but like with blood and chrome i mean i know i've known your logo designs that you've you've done for people since the very beginning and so this this is a weird thing to say but sometimes you take certain people's talent for granted i I think that's why i want to have more visual artists on because the visual art sometimes is such a key component in in a synthwave album you know like it really sort of sets the the tone Mm -hmm. and oftentimes we're not talking about that you know we're always talking about the music and meanwhile someone just does this oh that's the logo design that somebody did for free for me like five years ago that i'm still using because it perfectly encapsulates like (laughs) my brand you know and and uh yeah so that's why i think it's it's important to talk to you guys yeah totally if you're going like through a timeline, I should probably be the last one on there. But uh, you did talk to James White from Signal of Signal Noise. Yeah, I did a Signal Noise, and then Mizu Cat, but she does like uh, the console painting and stuff. That's right. I want to talk to Ariel. I haven't talked to him. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I know we're getting a little technical here, but what uh, software do you use? When I started, it was mostly Photoshop and Adobe Illustrator. Adobe Illustrator has a way that you can do 3D like. You know, if I design the logo, I can extrude it to make it look 3D. And I I did that at first. But nowadays, if I'm doing 3D, I'm using Blender for all my 3D stuff. And, you know, it's excellent. It's open source. It's free. And it's really powerful. And it does just about everything I needed to. Expand a bit on what you did for the animation. Because so, I mean, you mentioned earlier that you um, use 3D characters to like do the positions and then you sort of like paint it over them in Photoshop. That's right. For most of the characters, some of the characters were completely hand-drawn, but uh, a lot of them, it would have taken far too long for me to draw them frame by frame from scratch. What I did was I'd, I'd build like really simple model in in blender and i'd rig it up with an armature so i could move it around and so i designed the pose and like the movement and then export that into um, photoshop photoshop's got like an animated timeline that you can use that you could draw frame by frame over over a certain amount of time yeah that's basically how i did it because i know some people who use like that tune boom yeah there's tune boom there's uh tv paint there's all kinds of software out there, and they're all very, very expensive. In Photoshop, though, do you have the option to do, like, were you just, since you had the 3D animation sort of, like, running behind, did you have any need to see the previous frame? Because I know, like, in Toon Boom and those things, they, they're designed, you know, so they have the onion skin is what it's That's called, right, where, yeah. where you see the previous frame. So can you do that in Photoshop? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's got onion skinning, yeah. There's a, forget what it's called now, but there's a plug-in you can get that, uh, makes animating much easier. It basically puts all the major uh, functions of like the animation features 
into little buttons. So you can do onion skinning, you can set the frame rate, do all kinds of stuff. And how many frames a second was the animation you did? It was 12 frames per second. Okay. I think it would have taken far too long to do it at 24. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, I, I thought about doing 24, but then, you know, I went back and I looked at a lot of the references, the animation from, like, Thundercats and He-Man and things like that, and I noticed that they were really only 12 frames per second, and they still managed to make it smooth and, uh, and fluid. You know, that was just down to picking the right, uh, keyframes and making sure the in-betweens were done a certain way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I learned a lot doing it. 12 frames per second, it still turned out to be a whole bunch of frames. Like, each character has, like, maybe 50 to 60 frames a piece, and there's six of them, I think. So, you know, do the math. That's, like, 300 individual drawings, basically, mm-hmm. give or take a few. The one character I did completely by hand just in Photoshop was near the end. We've, we've got that little uh, like snarf Care Bear looking thing. That I did completely by hand. And that was sort of one of the last things I did. And I got comfortable kind of drawing each frame without needing any 3D reference. So, you know, I figured having at least one of those would help sell the uh, traditionally animated vibe that I was going for. I wish like more cartoons nowadays sort of looked like that because so many of the cartoons that, you know, I see that my son watches or whatever, there's such a crispness when it's all done digitally. Yeah. And I don't particularly care for it. First of all, the flash animation type stuff just bugs me. Like there's a lot of kids shows where, you know, they're obviously just moving around digital puppets. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's fine, but it's not, it doesn't excite me. Like, I, cause I can sort of see how they're doing it. Like, in After Effects now, there's even, like, this thing called Character Animator where you, like... Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. You get your webcam to actually film your face, and then it moves the face on the guy. Like That's right, it's yeah. cool if you want to do like South Park style animation. You could probably whip yeah. together a cartoon. There's a place for that, especially with something like South Park. If the show is good and it's funny, the animation just has to be good enough to get the point across. It's, it's obvious why they do it. It's because it takes much less time to do. Yes, and if these guys have to pump out weekly episodes on a regular basis than having to do it hand animated like they used to. It's a grind. Yeah. Like even the old stuff, like if you go back and you watch He-Man, you notice how a lot of times they're just standing there and they're not doing much, you know? Yeah, like when I was a kid, I used to watch, there was this cartoon that came on in the morning from the 60s called Hercules. Right. And Hercules was fucking notorious for all the ways they would get around animating characters. So they'd always be like walking behind bushes so that you <laughs> yeah. wouldn't have to see their legs. And no so, legs. so yeah. all it would be is their torso would just sort of like move up and down and like their arms would be in the same position and stuff. Even as a kid, like I remember like, what the fuck is this? Oh yeah. But then there's some examples uh, like classic examples of amazing animation like I bought the Looney Tunes collection the platinum collection on Blu-ray of all the old yeah. Bugs Bunny cartoons from like the 40s and stuff yeah, yeah. and when I was a kid for some reason I remembered them being bad animation I think it's just because it was mm. old like I think I was confused like I just thought like old equals cheap right the same with the old Spider-Man cartoon as well because I remember <laughs> when I was young I used to be like oh that old Spider-Man cartoon is just as poorly animated as Hercules but then when I bought the box set I realized oh no no like it's actually good. Yeah. The first season of it is good. Mm-hmm. And then when Ralph Bakshi takes over, that's when the show <laughs> goes all fucking wonky because then all the skies are always like these weird water, like green watercolor paintings and right. they reuse the animation cells. So like Spider-Man, instead of swinging like twice to get to a place, he would swing for like three minutes <laughs> because they were just trying to save on yeah. 
it was also because they did lose their money and like it was budget saving reason but it's still like sure. anyway yeah used a lot of those tricks back then like shows like the Flintstones as well you know right. like <laughs> all that stuff Scooby-Doo like after the Looney Tunes stuff it sort of went the way of limited animation because you know that they're animating for TV and they're doing it on a more regular basis because the Looney Tunes stuff was meant for you know they play those in, in front of movies like in the theater so they mm-hmm. come out much less regularly like maybe once or twice three times a year or something like that so the animators had a lot more time to sit there and put in the work you know when I was a kid I wasn't experiencing it the way that it was intended right because they would just collect them into this fucking like it was called yeah. the Bugs Bunny and Tweety show yeah yeah that's I when I was like the <laughs> yeah. Bugs Bunny and Tweety show and like so we'd watch all these just collection of things without acknowledging like the amount of work that went into them because the animation is so good in those things like it's so fluid but I don't know there's some new effects in cartoons now that just bug me there's like three in particular Mm -hmm. I just said three without realizing if I can fill up three in my list (laughs) (laughs) like I'm even holding up three fingers (laughs) 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 and this is an audio conversation All right, I got you for three minutes of playtime yeah (laughs) (laughs) you're going nowhere I got you for three minutes. Three minutes of peak time. I'll watch those, like, you know, direct-to-video Warner Brothers, like, Batman cartoons that they make now. Yeah. Whenever there's motion in a fight scene, they do, like, this sort of digital kind of motion blur of the characters to make it look like they're moving quickly, but you can tell it's not like there's frames of animation in between that movement. They're just sort of adding a weird blur to it. Do you know what I'm talking about, that effect? Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't like it. So that's one thing I don't like. (laughs) No, sir, I don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) To me, a lot of the new cartoons... They just look too clean. When I was watching your trailer, mm-hmm. I mean, I know you're doing it digitally, obviously. Like, I understand that. Yeah. But just the nature of the way the characters are drawn and the way that they're moving mm-hmm. was like, why can't more cartoons look like this? Like, this is like, I want to watch a cartoon that looks like I want you to get a lot of money. <laughs> and make a fucking show like because that's what i want to see like i don't like this weird super crisp digital looking like all the cartoons kind of look the same all the art style is sort of quasi anime kind of style with the character designs now like there's so much stuff i'm watching that just kind of it looks the same and i don't like the tricks they're doing to pad out the frames yeah i know what you mean I can't explain that weird motion blur, but it's in all the fight scenes. Like every time like characters are fighting now, there's always this weird motion blur that happens and I just find it distracting. Mm-hmm. When I go back and watch Ghostbusters, Transformers, I mean Transformers sometimes looks like it's like 5 frames a second, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But at the same time, I still like that better because it feels like every frame was actually like drawn. There's something different about it. That's right. Well, they had to Back then, they weren't using uh, software. Everything had to be drawn first on paper. And then cells, they do everything physically right there, you know, like in physical reality. So that's why you get that look. And I tried to recreate that digitally by, you know, like in some cases, I would forget to color certain things on purpose. You know how like shows like Transformers and stuff. Sometimes the colors would be off. Sometimes. Yeah. Well, a lot of <laughs> like times. The fucking, 
I don't think there's a single episode of Transformers where there isn't one shot where a Transformer is the complete wrong color or the wrong voice comes out of the... I, I don't think there's one yeah. where there's not one shot where it cuts back to Soundwave and there's like a different voice coming out of him, but his mouth is moving. That's <laughs> like right. Every or they're all he's completely the wrong size. Like he's way oh, too that, small yeah. <laughs> or way too big. <laughs> like Transformers, it's funny because I love Transformers, but it is pretty poorly animated when you actually watch it like there's some shots that are cool but at the same time i still prefer it you know what i mean because i still feel like hey man this is a you know even though it was a toy commercial it still feels more real to me than a lot of these the new digital ones that's right I agree. I, I might have a prejudice here. Like, it, it's the exact same thing when we talk about, you know, CGI versus uh, practical practical yeah. effects and stuff. And here's my question. Mm-hmm. And I think I was talking to somebody else about this, and I don't know why people don't do this. So right now, we're in this sort of period where there's a lot of 80s resurgence, right? And people are, you know, when they do like an 80s homage thing, and they try, like Stranger Things, for example, you know, where they try and film it with like, make the color kind of look like it's, you know, filmed with 80s cameras. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the Stranger Things title sequence, which is like the best part of the show. <laughs> You know, they've added, like, film grain and stuff in, in there yeah. and sort of, like, a little bit of shake and wobble to the letters, you know, like they would have back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, why don't they do this to cartoons? Like, the new digital cartoons. Like, just add a bit of fucking grain here and there and, like, maybe add a bit of wobble to the thing to sort of give it that. Because yeah. we're in this nostalgia right now and they're doing that to movies and things, but the cartoons are all, like, super crisp and I almost feel like maybe if they applied some of these tricks to a uh, digital animations like maybe i would make it kind of cooler for my eye like oh did you see the music video for donald glover's last one the childish gambino okay it's completely animated it's like he's walking down the street okay it's like feels like summer it's a good song okay but that one i, I like the style of that one i'll have to check that out yeah check it out it's animated but it seems like it's aged a bit and it seems like hand-drawn frames right um Anyway, whatever. Sorry. No, I know what you mean. Like adding that aged look, even though it's basically a fake effect. Mm-hmm. Like I try to add it to everything I've done because it makes it feel like it, it's like sprinkling a bit of magic on it or something. You know, for lack of a, <laughs> for lack of a better way to describe it. That's one of my favorite parts of the process is going in at the end and adding like that sort of grit and that dirt and a little bit of wobbly wobbly bleh, can't say that word shakiness here and there yeah 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 but yeah like i yeah i love that and uh i like when i see it out in the wild if i see a youtube video that does it right and i'm like oh that's nice it feels good so yeah i don't know why they don't add it in modern cartoons i guess it's just an extra step in post-processing that they don't feel as necessary. I think the other thing I noticed that bugs me a bit, maybe it's just because when I can understand how they do it. So, you know, like in new cartoons as well, when anything zooms into the frame, if something's in mm-hmm. the background and comes into the foreground, like a car or a character, they're clearly taking the animation and then just zooming it in. They're digitally zooming in a thing. Yeah. Whereas like in the old days when they would animate, you know, when a character was in the background, you knew they drew the character small because the lines would still be sort of the same thickness, right? Like you couldn't really make right. the lines any thinner. That's right. Yeah. So now you can really tell like when there's a shot of like a car coming right at the camera and they, they've just sort of pulled it in digitally yeah. instead of actually drawn the frames of a small car becoming a large car. Yeah. And that's an, another thing when I see that trick and I'm just like, ah, it just makes things look so cheap because I know, I know how you do that. I'm like, I know like, oh, they're in after effects or some other program they've just keyframed it small to big and like it it, yeah. it doesn't match it's like i feel like 
with old cartoons, I mean, everything was just hand-drawn, so it was all done in camera, you know? Yeah, that's right. They had to draw every single frame of that car getting bigger. I did a little bit of that in the middle of the Magnum Force video where... Um well, I did a lot of that, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the guy, you know, the guy that's got his guns and he's shooting, he starts out really big in frame and then he recedes into the background until he's really tiny. And all of that was just drawn. That kind of stuff is, is kind of tedious because you're drawing the same thing over and over again, but smaller. And it's just, uh, when am I going to be finished with this? But again, like the results, it's why I, I did it. I knew that the results were going to look the way I wanted it to. Yeah. I didn't I didn't want to take any shortcuts or cheat with it. For people listening, you got to go see the Magnum Force Kickstarter video. All right. Like it's so impressive and I feel foolish because I was late to it. You know, like I have so much stuff to look at and listen to. A listener sent me the link a while ago and I, and I didn't know it was you. Mm-hmm. So I just saw this link and someone posted like, hey, check out this 80s thing. And I'm like, OK, whatever. Like I'll do it in a while. Right. And then when I finally watched it. I was I was just mad at myself that I didn't watch it sooner. <laughs> it is one of the most impressive things I've seen come out of like I'm going to say this scene. Right. It's so professional looking. And I I don't mean that in a weird condescending way like cuz I I'm saying like this thing looks so fucking good. That's not condescending. <laughs> well, no, but it sounds like when I say that it's just like, "Oh, I'm so surprised that you did good work, Basil." But uh, you know. <laughs> I was surprised too. Believe me. <laughs> yeah. I was like, "What? I did that?" Fuck. It's just, wow. And I just want to see, and in a way, it annoys me because I want to see more stuff look like that. No, I mean, I get it. Obviously, it's a ton of work. But I would love to see just like a a new cartoon animated in that way because it reminded me of the things I liked. Because I know, because everything now, just with all the stupid digital tricks and the way everything's so crisp and clean, it just, I'm not a fan of the way cartoons look. Like, I can't get into them as as much. And I want to. (laughs) I haven't seen anything new for a while that's animated with the exception of maybe Rick and Morty I like that a lot even though it's it's still got that crisp look to it but I think the character designs and the characters themselves and and the stories carry the show just enough for it to be interesting and there's a lot of stuff in there that's very well animated too but you know it would be nice to see something yeah like you said fully animated from beginning to end but I think it's it just comes down to a question of time and money Mm-hmm. Is anybody willing to spend the time to produce a show like that and the money on it when they can make something far cheaper and it would take far less time and still get the same return on their investment or whatever? Yeah. All that business malarkey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> I think we'd all know a bit more about this had you graduated the class. Yeah. Gosh. Accounting. That was the thing that got me. Fuck. <laughs> Accounting. <laughs> <laughs> so what what then are your uh, artistic sort of inspirations? Like, what's the stuff that you like that sort of inspires you? There's a lot of stuff. We were talking about Looney Tunes. Yeah. I used to watch that stuff all the time. The old Tom and Jerry cartoons as well. Coyote and Roadrunner. Those are my favorites. That's Chuck Jones. Like, I love his work. And then all the Tex Avery stuff from Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. When he did these really exaggerated expressions and, and, you know, all that stuff was great. Of course, the 80s stuff we grew up with, He-Man, Thundercats, etc. And then m- most recently, like if we're talking about contemporaries, like Signal Noise, when I first saw his work, I was like, wow, okay. I really wanted to get into like the synthwave aesthetic and his work among some of the other guys like Overglow, Master Control Program, Chrome and Lightning, etc. Sort of gave me the uh, drive, no pun intended, <laughs> the drive to sort of uh, 
to get into it. So, and then, you know, like artists like Frank Frazetta, love his work. I used to read a lot of heavy metal magazine for a while. And there's an artist in there. He did a comic called FAK, F-A-K-K-2. His name is Simon Bisley. And he's like Frank Frazetta on steroids. <laughs> and I just love that style. And, and anything that's like exaggerated and kind of crazy looking. I really, really like. I'm trying to think of the old Warner Brothers ones that I love the most, but I think the thing that made me laugh the most, though, and I remember this, it's the stupidest gag. I don't know why it still makes me laugh, even when I think about it, but it was one of the ones where Bugs Bunny's facing off against Yosemite Sam. There's a part where he throws a banana peel down, and then Yosemite Sam runs, and then he stops, and he just sort of slows down right in front of the banana peel, Mm -hmm. but then... (laughs) Because he sees it, and then he slows down, and then he's going slow, and then the second he touches the banana peel, he just, like, flies and fast-forward, like, out of the plane. <laughs> it's, it's so stupid. I still laugh about that when I think yeah. it's so uh, fucking dumb. There's so many. Like, I wish I could remember half of them. Even some of the Disney stuff. Like, you ever seen uh, Goofy Gymnastics, where he buys, like, this little gym kit and he sets it up in his apartment and he's you know he's trying to like exercise and he just keeps fucking up until by the end it's a complete disaster that's that's a classic you should see that i had i used to have this tape uh that my dad made he had like a an old like winnie the pooh movie on it or something and it had a few disney shorts at the start and one of them was goofy these were the only Disney ones I ever watched because it was just the only tape I had. Mm-hmm. The one with Goofy was he, he becomes a photographer and so he gets like a camera kit and a film and he's like, he's doing like a tutorial on how to take pictures and then he ends up getting like chased by a bear through like an amusement park. Kind of rings a bell. Not sure. I've seen so many of these. When I was young, I used to think the Warner Brothers ones are the cool ones because they're more violent than the Disney ones, Mm -hmm. which I guess is true. But the Disney ones were pretty well animated as well, like nice, smooth. You know, even the Disney shows are are pretty well animated, like gummy bears and stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's definitely what I remember from back in the day. The theme song was great to that. Oh, I love gummy gummy bears. bears. Oh, yeah. Gummy bears. (laughs) Bouncing here and there and everywhere. Yeah. yeah, no, I love uh, I love gummy bears. <laughs> I think like, in like 2008 or something, I did like this cover of that song. <laughs> right? Oh yeah, put it on. I my need e- to hear this. No, oh, it's terrible. It's uh, very auto tuned because I'm not a good singer. <laughs> that was probably my favorite of the Disney ones. I like Ducktales as well. I think I like Gummy Bears better, but like yeah. Ducktales, I enjoy. Yeah, Chippendales, I like the song. What about Darkwing Duck? Remember Darkwing Duck? I do, but I, Darkwing Duck came right at the time where I was sort of done with the dis. Like you know, you know how like when you 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 look at your age and you can see like oh, if I was just a year younger or a year older, yeah, yeah. Um, this is the thing I always have with um, Mike uh, Hoo Ha because mm-hmm. he's four years younger than me, so he ends up liking all of these like stupid '90s movies that I just kind of wrote off because like they're not important to me. And so, and I started realizing like oh, just what that age difference means for certain pop culture references that's true yeah i was just too old to like power rangers i'm with you on that because i'm also uh near and around the same age as you and uh once power rangers came on the scene i was like fuck this (laughs) to me i think there's a few things in that pile it's like power rangers if i was like even maybe a year younger i might have been like hey power rangers is cool but i was just right at that time where i was like watching like batman the animated series and stuff and i was like that was just so much better you know of a show yeah absolutely it was more of a an adult kind of thing that's when your your tastes sort of shift towards the darker stuff 
I remember before Power Rangers ever came out, where I was living, the TV station imported a couple of Japanese versions a couple of years before Power Rangers even existed. And I was watching those, and I liked those because、mm. they were actually a lot more like adult oriented. You know, like their people were dying, you know, like that yeah, kind of、yeah. thing. You know how the Japanese do things. You know, their stories are very nuanced, I guess. Sure. Not just, you know, it's not just straight ahead, good guys versus bad guys. Like there's layers of gray. So. I remember even at age like 12 or whatever, I could appreciate that kind of thing. And Power Rangers was sort of watered down, way too simplistic. And so, you know, definitely lost interest at that point. Yeah, it's also just the goofiness, I think, bugged me. It's the same as like, you know, when you watch Power Rangers, and even though they're fighting things, it's not really cool because there's no like impact to the fight sequences. It's like, I remember when. Smash Brothers came out on、right. the N64. I remember it bugged me because in the American version, or the North American version, because I'm in Canada,、mm-hmm. for some reason they changed the punching sound effects to sound like bowling pins.、Huh. When you'd punch, it wouldn't sound like a punch. It would sound like a bowling pin. And like when people got knocked over, it sounded like a strike, you know, like that bowling sound effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They did that on purpose. I guess it was more. Family friendly or whatever, but、mm-hmm. I remember just really not liking that. They've since changed it now. Like, I mean, with the newer games, they don't do that anymore, but they, and I think it was actually just the North American version of the game that did that. Was that around the time when the whole Mortal Kombat thing was an issue? Yeah, like the N64 time, well, yeah, like right around that time, that period of years after Goldeneye, that was like the first major, you know, like not to go dark here, but you know, like school shooting, you know, like Columbine. Right. There was like right, a trickle down、right. effect of it. Video games because video games was the thing being blamed. I still have in my attic somewhere the original. So there was a game on N64 called Shadow Man. Yeah, I remember Shadow Man. Yeah, see, I, I like Shadow Man a lot, although it has a one annoying sound effect that when I go back to try and play it, like the main gun you have when you go into Dark Side World,、mm-hmm. it's like this soul gun. It's like a handgun that shoots out like a skull. And the sound it makes is so annoying. <laughs> it's like the fucking worst. The sound is so shitty. And then it's the same sound over and over again. Like there's no change. So if you keep on Mashing the gun button,、mm-hmm. it's just this this stupid sound, and it's like so loud. Anyway, what was my point? Oh yeah, so the the <laughs> but like the game was cool. I remember the game was cool, and the original poster is he's holding a handgun and pointing it at the camera. Yeah, and I still have that. I mean, not the full poster, but like the the one that when you used to buy like video games, you know, they used to come. There you always used to be like a poster inside for like the game and like an advertisement for another game by that company.、Mm-hmm. One side is Turok, and the other side is like some other game made by Acclaim.、Right. And they changed it. So right around when Columbine happened and people started getting weird. About、uh, video game violence, they changed it so he was holding a skull instead of a gun.、Right. It's the same artwork, but he's holding a skull instead, and that's I think what made it to the box. But the poster had the guns, and then Perfect Dark. The successor to GoldenEye was going to have an option where if you had Game Boy Camera, you could take a picture of your face and put it. On a character,、right. and then they got rid of that feature specifically because you know they had no control over what people were going to take pictures of, and so <laughs> it was another thing that was like out of their control, and they didn't want to have like some controversy with video game violence. And then there was like a whole bunch of little things like that. Like I think there was another one too, maybe one of those games where you're、uh, was it Vigilante Eight?、Hmm. Maybe like where there was a school bus. Character that they maybe changed or something because it was it was like Twisted Metal where you're like vehicle combat and I think one of the、right. characters was a school bus and I remember there was a game called Carmageddon. Do you remember that one? I think it was on PC. 
they made the blood green instead of humans that you were running over. You were running over zombies, and their blood was green. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the 90s was funny for stuff like that. I remember, yeah. like, the Spider-Man cartoon. It took place in kind of the future, so that the guns that all the characters had were sort of yeah, laser like guns. laser guns. Yeah. They did that with G.I. Joe, too, I remember. Like, all the, all the Joes had these laser guns. And Cobra, too. And I was watching a video on YouTube recently about Batman the Animated Series finding ways to circumvent that gun thing because they were set in, like, this nondescript period of time mm-hmm. where it's kind of like the 50s or the 30s or whatever, but there's also, like, modern elements. But all the guns were, like, these Tommy gun-looking things. Mm-hmm. And the reason why they got away with that was because nobody was selling Tommy guns anymore. You know, it was like a, a bygone thing. So it didn't quite look like a real gun. Because it had that brown magazine thing Mm -hmm. on the bottom of it. So it looked kind of like a fake gun, but it was based on a real gun. So they were able to get away with that. I think that's my favorite part about with Batman as well in the animated series, how they would always make sure to show you that the character didn't die. Yeah. So, like, even if you, like, kick somebody out of a helicopter, there would be a shot of, like, the bad guy landing in a tree or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Just so you know that he didn't die. Like, you know, that Joker gas that laughing gas it leaves people like catatonic and with a permanent smile on their face and their eyes are like wide open and dilated and whatever yeah and it it looks like they're in a kind of death like a horrific kind of coma and i think that's worse than dying if you ask me but was that in the show or in mask like i think mask of the phantasm people died might have been one of the the movies i'm not sure i can't remember exactly i remember fond memories of having first discovered that show and i was like what is this this is great this is like nothing else out there yeah i was huge into batman at that time anyways like because i love batman returns and i used to watch that movie a lot which is your favorite of the movies of the tim burton ones uh returns i like returns the best i have to say the first one's my favorite it just feels grittier like dirtier almost yeah for me it's just batman returns is so weird it was like my favorite movie when i was in grade six and i remember i just i watched it all the time Mm. And I really like Danny Elfman's music in the second one. Yeah. The score is really great and atmospheric, but it's it's definitely like, it's a weird movie. Like when people say they don't like Batman Returns, I can't argue with them about it because I'm like, yeah, it is a fucking weird. And some of it can be pretty off-putting. Like if you find the Penguin like a gross character, then yeah. I can't argue with that. Like I know lots of people who are just, they just can't handle the shot of him eating the fish and like black <laughs> shit like coming out of his mouth and stuff. Like it's weird. It's such a weird movie. Yeah, it is. The gross fact in that film is definitely a thing. But I, I don't think it ever bothered me, though. But I think the reason why I liked the first movie better was just because that was the first one I ever saw. So there's a nostalgia part of it. But also, I love the Joker in that. Like, yes. for me, that Joker is just so cool. You know, he's, he, he's not, like, unhinged necessarily. He is a little bit, but he's also, like, under control. Like, he knows what he's doing. You know, he's a very sort of threatening character. He's not, like, purely comical. Plus... The scene still makes me laugh my ass off when he slides into the frame and says, never rub another man's rhubarb. Yeah, never never rub another man's rhubarb. <laughs> what I've always loved about that shot was that he comes into the frame. Yeah. Michael Keaton's on the floor, and then it all of a sudden just films like the ceiling and, you know, like this beige room, and then <laughs> yeah, yeah, Joker yeah. slides into the frame. <laughs> <laughs> like, it still makes me laugh to this day. Like, it's such a funny shot. And fucking... Uh, I'm glad you're dead when when the dude's a yeah. skeleton and he keeps talking to the skeleton. I love that scene so much. 
<laughs> it's fucking awesome. Yeah, he's got so, so many good lines in that film. Yes, like I would say I like the style of Batman Returns. Mm-hmm. So I like the way the costume looks. I like the overall look of the movie because that was before. Now every movie, they just run it through digital filters and stylize the look of it. You know, like every movie yeah. you watch now is like blue and green and all this. Yeah. But I feel like there was a time where that was like a novelty to have a movie that, oh, this movie's kind of like shades of blue. Like, that's cool. Because yeah. like most movies just look normal, you know, like just looks like real life. So I really like the stylized look of it and feel of it. But definitely Joker is a stronger character than Penguin and Catwoman. Like he's definitely stronger. Yeah, definitely. Like, and you just mentioned the whole color grading thing that new movies have. I actually like it when movies look more naturalistic with like a naturalistic lighting without any filters added on top of them. Yeah. Anytime I see filters added on top, I'm like, I get a little bit annoyed about that. I do too. And there was a time where it was novel and cool. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And I think the way they did Batman Returns was probably more so to do with the actual art direction, like all the props and everything in front of the camera was specifically made to look a certain way. They actually put the effort into doing that instead of just going over everything at the end, you know, like applying just a, a filter over everything now the problem is it takes me out of it because it adds another layer of fakeness right so yeah, even if exactly. i really like the movies i love superhero films i enjoy the marvel movies but like with each one they, they're becoming more and more cgi and there's a lot more filters going on to sort of blend everything together that's right yeah. and it does remove me a bit when matrix came out it was cool because not mo- like a lot of movies weren't doing that. Yeah. And it has a story purpose. It's like, you know, yeah, when right. it's kind yeah. of green, you're in the Matrix. When it's kind of mm-hmm. blue, you're out of the Matrix. So there's a story reason for the color grading as well. Yeah, exactly. Like if there's a purpose behind it, and it's I was going to actually mention Matrix as well. Like that's one of the movies that utilized it properly as a storytelling aid. Because, yeah, if you're in the Matrix, having that green filter over everything reinforces that this world is not real. Yeah, I think now they just do it because they can. I don't know if that means less care is taken in the actual lighting, like, on set, or, like, they just go, like, well, you know, this is going to take place in a desert, so we're going to, you know, color grade it to be a bit more yellow and orange, and there's just something about it that feels a little unnatural, and so when I go back and watch a lot of my favorite movies, I was watching Terminator 2 the other day, Mm -hmm. and it's pretty much just, you know, this looks normal. I mean, like, besides at the end... in the in the molten metal plant or whatever you know like where it's kind Mm -hmm. of blues and and that's intentional because it's blue but the sparks are all orange and reds and so you've got those cool things where like a red light's coming from this way and a blue from the other and like i think maybe that's what's missing now for movies because since the effects are all so digital and everything's fucking manipulated digitally color correction afterwards it just adds another level of fakeness that if you capture it in camera and you have people actually in costumes and props and you can just film it everything just feels more real when it looks like real life, I guess. I'm no expert on uh, digital cameras versus film cameras, but I think that like, if you shoot something with a digital camera and you don't apply any color grading to it, it has that flat look. You know what I mean? I should talk to um, Jean-Philippe from uh, Le Matos because he's a cinematographer. Right, yeah. And I I think he actually has a red camera. Like, digital cameras, they're designed specifically that you are going to manipulate it later. Yeah, I think you almost have to, yeah. Yeah, so the most important thing is it just gathers as much information as possible. Right. So then it it ends up flat, like you said, and then you take it in, you go, okay, well, we'll up the contrast and we'll do this and that, 
but the reason why it looks so flat is because you're just trying to capture the most information possible in like every frame and then manipulate it later. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I guess there's there's a difference between enhancing what you know, like say like Lord of the Rings. Yeah. So Lord of the Rings is an example where they do a lot of digital correction, but it sort of works for the movie because you go, okay, we filmed Hobbiton, it looks like this, let's fucking amp the green up to like fucking max mm-hmm. to just show how lush and beautiful the grass is here and it's all greens and yellow flowers and stuff to contrast the darkness and yeah like they probably did a lot of enhancing because the grass wasn't that green or whatever Mm -hmm. fine like that stuff i can sort of accept and it's fantasy right so then it adds another level whereas movies where it's just like nowadays it's like oh it's a thriller well thrillers have to be tinted blue you know because that's what a thriller is thrillers are blue you know and it's i don't know like i just i just feel like that's what's happening it's like if it's a dark movie then like the subject matter is dark then you also have to make the movie blue yeah i mean there's a place for all this stuff if you think or if you believe that color grading will enhance the storytelling yeah do it but i agree that there's a lot of occasions where it's just done just because like you said oh this is a thriller make it blue this is a horror movie you know like those remakes of uh well like friday Friday the 13th, 13th yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Where they color grade everything kind of teal. Well, not That's not the right color. <laughs> you mean like uh, where they sepia tone sepia. everything? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, sepia tone everything. Then they just do it just because it gives it that kind of backwoods feeling, like it's out in, out in the sticks or whatever. It's one of my least favorite tones. It only works when, if it's like historical, uh, you know, like say Godfather 2. Right, yeah. But I mean, again, they didn't do it digitally, but you know, they sepia tone kind of the uh, the stuff that takes place in the past, to, you know, and it shows you like, yeah, we're in the past now. I mean, like, that's why it's everything looks like a postcard because we're in a, a different time. Yeah, and it differentiates it from the present day stuff, you know, like it's a visual aid, like it makes sense in the storytelling. It's like, okay, now we're in the past. Like, you, you just have that shorthand, the colors changed. I get that, you know. And even, like, the whole argument of uh, practical versus CGI. Again, there's a place for CGI. Like, a lot of times CGI is great for, like, if you want to replace parts of the set with, you know, like, back in the day they used to paint matte paintings to make it look like they were in a much larger environment. Well, nowadays, mm. computer graphics works great for that. You can do it much more quickly and it looks better. Like, I was watching the the behind the scenes of the movie Aliens mm-hmm. and how they did some of those matte paintings, the actual technique of it is so impressive because I think there's one shot that they were showing where they had the extended shot and they had the matte painting. I'm getting this wrong, but I remember like some of that they did in camera where it's actually yeah. like the matte painting is being like reflected on a mirror or something. There was a shot when they're waking up from their uh, cryogenic pods and to make it look like there were more of them, they simply placed the mirror behind, like, there were four actual ones, and they placed the mirror to make it look like they were extended out further. So that's like a neat little in-camera trick, just using a mirror, you know? In-camera tricks are fun for me. I think that's why, I mean, I liked Lord of the Rings, like the first trilogy, more than The Hobbit, because The Hobbit was all just CGI'd. Mm-hmm. The first trilogy, I like that they actually had a lot of, like, in-camera tricks to make Gandalf bigger than The Hobbits. Yeah, the first Lord of the Rings movie that whole behind the scenes featurette on the dvd like i watched those oh they're amazing yeah there's so many techniques from back in the day like rear projection Mm -hmm. like you know that one scene in terminator 2 where uh you know arnold schwarzenegger's character grabs john connor 
and puts him on his bike, mm-hmm. just grabs him by the collar with one arm, you know? Yeah. And all that whole background behind him was a projection, but it, it looked really good because, you know, they shot it outside in the same location and the lighting matched and everything. There's, you know, it was seamless. That's got to be so hard because, like, with lighting in general, like, if you have a light source that's coming from behind the actors because the projection aspect of it, mm-hmm. but then you also have to light the actors the same and make sure that their lighting doesn't fuck up the projection or dim the image in the screen. Like, I've never actually watched a video of how they accomplish that, but I'd be curious to see. But I, I do think it's a cool effect. And I mean, and the other day when I w- watched T2 uh, on Netflix, uh, speaking of effects, I think that that version is the updated version. Oh, okay. You know, before when Arnold goes over the ramp on the bike and you can tell it's a really obvious stunt guy because they did it in slow motion yeah, yeah, yeah. they've like cgi'd arnold's head onto him in this version oh okay they went back and fixed that and i believe they also cgi'd out robert patrick's scrotum like there's a there's a scene <laughs> where you see the t1000's bag when he like after he yeah. kills that cop which yeah, yeah. <laughs> which the thing is i don't ever remember seeing his bag but then everyone's just like oh you can see his bag in it and i was like really but then when i watched it this time i didn't see a bag and i was like specifically looking at this point so i think it's the version where they removed it i remember the bag i would have i mean like when i was young like it made me laugh even like in terminator one mm-hmm. if you watch it with the contrast up like you can see arnold's dink just like fucking going back and <laughs> forth when he's like walking in that area i remember that too oh i got a question for you i don't know if you know the answer to this in 80s cartoons sorry this is like such a tangent no problem do you know how they achieved the glowing effect of lasers the glowing effect i believe uh it was simply backlit there's a light behind the uh cell and it was shining right at the lens, and that's how you get that glow effect. It was an actual light. I think they might have done the lasers on another pass, like on separate cells, and filmed that individually. I'm just guessing, but I'm, I'm positive that that glow effect is achieved with actual light in some way. And I think the laser the lasers were added after the fact with like a light behind it, and they were shot separately, and then they were composited later, I think. Because that's another thing that's really impressive about your um, your trailer, because you've totally fucking mastered like the 80s cartoon laser beam, <laughs> which I love. I know I mentioned this to you privately, but if I ever get around to making my robot show, which is a joke at this point, because I think I've been talking about this for like four years. Yeah, I remember you told me about that. Yeah. I would love to do, even if it's, even though it's live action, I want the lasers to look like 80s lasers because I was watching them in slow motion. I was watching like the intro to Mask mm-hmm. as an example. In Mask, right? And there's those shots where it shows kind of like a cannon. And I love the way the 80s laser blasts. It starts as sort of like a ball. You know, there's like a circle of energy and it, that yeah, circle yeah. sort of like breaks and becomes like this scattered kind of stream. Yep, yep. I love that effect too. Yeah. yeah, it's fucking awesome. I don't know if it would work in live action, if it would look kind of cartoony, but like I just like that effect. I think it just looks so cool. I think that'd be cool to put that into a live action shot. I don't think I've ever seen that. Because it really makes lasers feel like a laser blast. You know, it's like it's like this ball of energy that like can't be contained at the front of the gun and it fucking breaks. Yeah, yeah. Gives it that much more energy. Makes it feel like, like you said, like the energy's barely contained and then it just juts out after it's accumulated to turn it to this ball and then pow it just shoots out a lot of those tricks come from the japanese animations of the time as well they sort of pioneered all those really great laser effects and you know light effects and that kind of stuff yeah like if you go back and you watch you know the series from the 80s and stuff you'll see like gundam and stuff it's chock full of that kind of stuff do you think anyone owns i know i'm asking you these weird questions do you (laughs) i was thinking about this because in my robot show the design that i did for the one robot 
is very, very heavily inspired by Optimus Prime. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, like, do you think anyone owns the copyright to, like, anime robot, like, with the horns and the mask? There's a lot of different anime that sort of has this style, right? Like, where the, the robots have the horns. Yeah. I mean, I call them horns, but, like, the ears or whatever you want to call them. I know what you mean. And, like, a face mask. And so I, I remember when I was doing my research for it, I was, like, looking up old anime and the origins of anime robots just to see, like, does one specific company own the design like if you did like an optimus prime like robot but just didn't call him optimus prime could they sue you i think if it looks different enough it's fine there's tons of robots out there that share similar qualities like you know like the face mask the the pointy ears the giant shoulders you know like all these little sort of hallmarks shared between all all different kinds of robots but you know as long as it doesn't look exactly like Optimus Prime, you should be fine. See, I wonder if the copyright, like the nature of the copyright of Transformers is that they're aliens from another world who are robotic that have the ability to transform into Earth vehicles. They can't really copyright the idea of the face mask of a robot or the horns because like Gundam, Voltron, like there's lots of like Mm -hmm. different things that sort of have that similar look, although sometimes not all together. Like some of them just have the face mask thing, but no horns. Because like... Do Gundams have the horns, or they just have the face mask? I don't remember. Yeah, they have the horns. Yeah, if you look at a Gundam, it's it wouldn't be out of place in the Transformers like show. That's for sure. Yeah, it was very very similar look to it. I think the if you're talking about copyright though, like it, like the toy company Hasbro that owns Transformers, they might have an issue if you made it look too similar, like almost like bootleg type thing where it's Optimus Prime with a different color scheme. I just love the face mask and the horns, but the color scheme. You know, like, I wouldn't do, like, a fucking red and blue. Although the first one I did was red. Right. And I was thinking, like, okay, well, maybe the new version I'll do, I'll make them gold or something, and then that gets away that. But I love the look of the face mask and the horns. Like, I love that. I think I think you'd be fine. But Optimus Prime has, like, double horns. <laughs> Does he? Because he's got a big pair, and then he's got, like, little horns as well, like, on the inside. <laughs> he's got a big pair, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. All right, look, (laughs) we could probably uh, wind this down. Yeah, man, whenever you want. So what should people do? Should they go to your website to look at your stuff? Of course. Yeah, go to the website. Look at all of my stuff. So blood and chrome. Right now, my URL is pointing to just my Tumblr page where I post basically my work. So it's bloodandchrome.com. Like this is your job now, right? Yeah, basically. Yeah. Over the years, it's turned into a job now. Yeah. It's gotten serious. So that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. Glad to be on this side of things because there was a time when uh, things were kind of rough. I was going hungry. <laughs> Not anymore. Like I said at the start of this conversation, sometimes people take the art for granted. And so it's nice to be able to see talented artists get the recognition that they deserve for their talents and also the financial compensation. I never believe that I have any anything coming to me. I'm just glad to be doing this. I'm very fortunate you know, like, I, I think I, I hit upon something that people liked at the right time. It could have been anybody. You know, had I not got into the 80s thing, I'd probably still be scrounging for sense. But yeah, I'm, I'm very, very lucky, very fortunate to be in this position. And a, a lot of it, I owe it to um, James White of Signal Noise, because uh, like he approached me a couple of years back to do uh, some work on a video game. And he didn't know me. We never talked. He took a chance on some guy clear across the other side of the world. And uh, yeah, I owe a lot to James and 
He's a really nice guy, a very nice, polite Canadian like yourself. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I'm polite, but... Okay. He's a Canadian like you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I, think, I think he is more polite than me. Yes. I believe that to be true. Yeah. No, yeah. James is a really great guy. And uh, yeah, I owe a lot to him. And yeah, I owe a lot to just the people that request stuff for me. You know, like they'll message me and be like, hey, like your stuff. You want to do something? And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. As long as that keeps happening, I'll be a happy person. Even if it stops, I'll be happy to have been part of that. Yeah, man. Yeah, it's all good. Good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds like when I wrap something up. Good stuff. <laughs> good. Uh, this is why you've got the show and I don't. <laughs> Anyways, look, man, uh, it was lovely to meet you. Keep on doing awesome stuff. I will. You're a talented guy. People, if they haven't watched it, go watch that damn fucking video because it's so good. Yeah, just uh, it's on YouTube. Just Google Magnum Force Kickstarter pitch video. I think that's what I called it. And uh, it's there for you to enjoy. So what's the deal? Like, did that Kickstarter work? <laughs> yeah, it did. It worked. It actually worked. Can you believe it? So the idea was that was the Kickstarter to start producing, like, these cards. Do they exist now to buy? They'll, they'll exist. The backers will get their cards. Mm-hmm. And then there'll be a few made to sell on uh, rareplayingcards.com. There's people I partnered up with uh, in limited quantities. So once they're gone, they're gone un- unless I decide to make another run if, if anybody out there wants more. So, yeah. Yeah, it's all good. Well, I like a nice success story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was good. It was good. First Kickstarter I ever did. So I'm glad that it went well. It actually went well. I was nervous because, you know, like it's a deck of playing cards and you know it's not all that exciting i guess i relied on the presentation to sort of hook people in and you know for the most part it it did its job so i'm very happy with it it was a very lovely presentation thank you that's the key because yeah with kickstarters you gotta fucking when you have that wow factor which is nice because you know i see a lot of kickstarters where you're wondering like why would i give money to this (laughs) uh you know when someone can't even put in the effort to like do a decent video presentation you know about their project yeah and so uh, your thing was uh, very impressive. Well, thank you. Your thing is impressive, too. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Uh, all right, man. Well, look, you have a lovely day. It was lovely talking to you. Keep on rocking the fucking rock. What? And uh, <laughs> and have a... <laughs> I will. I'm going to go rock it right now. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Take care, dude. All right, buddy. It was, uh, it was fun. I've had the time of my life. And that was my chat with Basil. It was the last time I ever spoke with him, although we chatted several times after that on Facebook or Messenger or whatever. But he was a really talented guy. Amazingly so. And if there's anything to be gleaned from all this, I mean, I know whenever people pass away, there's a lot of very cliched things that one can say in order to deal with their loss. But as we've discussed, you know, over the course of this show, I guess one of the main things you can do is to to make sure that if there are artists in your life whose work means something to you, to make sure that you tell them. It never goes unappreciated from an artist. Obviously, when we're talking about music or the visual arts, obviously buying their music is good and it allows them to keep doing what they do, but... No one ever tires of receiving a nice 
comment. And in a world so full of mean-spirited and awful things that people say to one another, it makes those nice moments stand out so much more. And it feels really good, too, to tell someone how talented they are, especially when you mean it. When I talked to Basil, I meant it. And although it's unfortunate that we won't get to see any new artwork from him or animations or videos and stuff, at least he did leave behind a varied and impressive body of work, some of which was very influential in forming and helping shape the synthwave scene in its early days. So I want to thank you all for listening to the show, and I want to say uh, goodbye to Basil, a.k.a. Blood and Chrome, who was the most talented visual artist in this scene. We're going to miss you, man. And since we spoke about it so many times uh, throughout the course of this conversation, I thought maybe we'd play the song from the Magnum Force animation that he put together because it's a cool track, fun 80s synths and guitars and that sort of thing. Because ultimately for us that are still here, we got to... We got to bask in the awesomeness of the work that was produced, that he produced, because that kind of stuff made us feel good and energized and excited, and that's the power of art, is that even when the artist is no longer here, the work still speaks for itself and can still give us that energy and that fire and that inspiration, as uh, as I think a lot of people in this scene were inspired by... Basil's work. So take care, blood and chrome. You will be missed. And thanks for giving us some cool stuff to look at and making our lives just that little bit better.
absolutely not. Our brains aren't, we're not wired that way. Uh, our uh, strengths are creativity and, you know, the ability to perceive new ideas creatively. It basically boils down to creativity, artistry, and whatever it is that is an expression of the human soul, you know, our emotions are what lead us to create meaningful music, art, um, prose, poetry, all that kind of stuff. Of course, all that is meaningful as far as it means anything to us, whether it's individually or as a whole. You know, are those things important to run a society? Perhaps not, but you can't deny that, you know, art and creativity are what enrich our lives.